0: It's the weekend watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono.
1: It's Saturday. that means it's another edition of the weekend watchdog Mike Silva Joe Bono this very uh, chilly week full of lots of snow February the 7th. Hope everybody's doing well of course. Send us a tweet at Mike Silver Media if you want to contact me at jbono611 and to listen to the show live or on replay, we can watch those dot com. And he is back from Mexico in one piece. I'm happy. I didn't have to have any celebrity fill in on the, at the last minute. It's uh, my good buddy Joe Bono. Joe, how you doing, man? How is it uh, south of the border? Did you have a good week? <laughs> I did have a really nice week. First time in Mexico City, um, not really the first time in Mexico I've done the touristy, vacation destinations, the Cabo San Lucas, the Puerto Vallarta, Playa del Carmen, Casa de Mayo, Cozumel. I've, I've done all of those, but Mexico City is much, much different. And, you know, you hear about siesta in Mexico City and, you know, other countries, and it's so true. You cannot have a meeting two and four in the afternoon. No one is around. No one will take a meeting. And there were no options. You go walk around New York City for lunch. Every option that you go to is somewhere you could go go in, go online, order something quick, order a salad, order a sandwich, get it, walk out, go back to your desk, scarf it down, and go back to work. There's no right. place like that around the office. You have to sit down. You have right. to sit down. You have to wait for the waiter. The waiter comes over, tells you the specials. It's an hour and a half, two-hour process. People are drinking you know, wine and beer with lunch. Then you go back to the office at 4 o'clock, you're there for a couple more hours, and you go home. So Now, people I have dinner late. That. Yeah, we, we tend to live in a much... We think it's normal and we think it's healthy, but we tend to live... An environment that isn't healthy. Now, Mexico City. You know, we we have a fun show today. We'll be, you know, we're obviously football's over. We'll, we'll get a, a little bit into that. But talking football today is like having Thanksgiving leftovers. December fifth. Let's let's face it. But Mexico City. They've had baseball south of the border exhibition, well, regular season games south of the border. Is it Jamaica Queens? Is it New York City? You know, what is it in terms of how can you compare it to someone who hasn't been there? And can We know the safety issue, but can baseball thrive down there, eventually down the road with an expansion team or some kind of team? there? Uh, Talking to some of the, you know, the locals there, obviously soccer was, I mean, it was talk about soccer, it was talk about bullfighting, and it was talk about kind of the, uh, you know, like Luches, the, uh, you know, kind of a, Nacho Libre wrestling (laughs) goes down there. Um, The people I talked to were not necessarily baseball fans. I did see a fair amount of NFL jerseys and a fair amount of Patriots jerseys. You know, quickly after the uh, Super Bowl victory, I got down there on Monday. Um, So there were that was kind of surprising to see so much NFL uh, apparel out. Um, And some of the local newspapers, I mean, the Caribbean. World Series is going on, so that was on the news. Uh, They actually have their own Spanish version of PTI, which ESPN Deportes, I kind of found was uh, quite funny. And then um, Adrian Gonzalez was in the news, some profiles on him and things like that as a Mexican-born player. But talking to someone didn't seem like when I was mentioning baseball, whether or not they were fans, it didn't seem like that was a priority for uh, the people living in Mexico City. Did you feel unsafe? You know, I was concerned for you. I was hoping that they had some kind of weekend watchdog. I was going to send a weekend watchdog guard to make sure that you didn't get uh, kidnapped for ransom. You know, the, the budget <laughs> for this what? show is very small, very small. So if there was a kidnapping, you know, unfortunately, Joe, I would have to say, hey, you know, you know, we're going to have to pass on this one. You're going to have to find a way to escape on your own at some point. Oh well, You're going I gonna could have have do a lone survivor is. deal with there or something. We, we'd have just been doing the show from my uh, unknown location, Mexico City. That would have been my. <laughs> My negotiation is that you keep me hostage here, but uh, yeah. keep me, holding me for ransom. But I need to be uh, online I'd, uh, you know, for two hours Please, on Saturdays. Yeah. Uh, I personally didn't have any issues with the safety, despite all the warnings and everything. But uh, talking to people, there were certainly uh, instances of whether or not people were locals there or people that were uh, tourists and coming, coming on board. Uh, just for a week or so, that definitely ran into issues. So maybe I was just fortunate or the type of places that I visited, the type of areas I I, I visited uh, were more of the safer type of issues. Made sure we got the taxis and things that were organized by the hotel. And, you know, I'm sure there's things that you can't do there that you can do in, in New York City, which is kind of just, you know, raise your hand, flag down any car and, and know you're going to get where you're going to get. So I personally didn't run into anything. I felt safe for the majority of the time. I think I blend in a little bit there, Mike.
2: Like, everyone just you came do. up to me
1: speaking Spanish. Like, if I was a six-foot, two-inch, uh, fair-haired, you know, fair-skinned American, I think they would make more of an effort to say, all right, this guy doesn't speak Spanish, most likely. But for me, they would start every conversation in Spanish and then look dumbfounded when I was, like, you know, big-eyed and being like, uh, no habla espanol. <laughs> no, no, no uh, hablo espanol. So... Uh, we do know, though, we do know, despite the fact that it's a you know, soccer crazy, you, know, you mentioned the whole Patriots jersey, we do know that you had a chance to actually catch up with your hockey. Because if you go to Joe Bono's Facebook page, if you're allowed, if you're privileged enough to go to Joe Bono's Facebook page, or it may have been on Twitter, I, don't, I can't remember now, you had a chance to actually, was it the Islanders you had to check in with, or was it the actual the Rangers game that you watched? You, you had to get your hockey fixed south of the border. Oh, they had it on. They had it on in the hotel. That was in the following morning. But I was just surprised that they had even a replay of a hockey game on uh, during the day. Um, you know how it is when you're traveling abroad. You got to keep your phone on airplane mode. So if I was in the hotel or in the office, you had a Wi-Fi connection. You kind of monitor what was going on. Um, but if you're out, you know, going out to dinner and something, I'm radio silence pretty much at that point. I'm, I'm right out until I get back to the uh, get back to the uh, the hotel and reconnect to uh, the United States world and happenings going on in sports. So, oh, so that's basically, so you're on airplane mode. You have, you know, calls cost you a $1,000. And, uh, yeah, I'm not making you know, was, calls. Did you know that the, the Islanders, uh, you know, are, were a little bit of a slump when you left? So you might have been that key where you, you leave, you're gone, you're south of the border. <laughs> now, now, I'll, I'll well, have they, a big win against Philly, but they were slumping a little bit. I was getting nervous for you. I was trying to hold down yeah, the court. Yeah, they, uh, they lost the Tuesday game. I missed the Fisherman jersey night at the Nassau Coliseum where they wore the, 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 the jersey, or at least the logo of the Jersey during the warmups and they lose Tuesday. And then Thursday I was completely, I did not, I was not online at all during the game, got back to my hotel. And that's like a nerve wracking, you know, I'm sure all fans have done this either on West coast trips or maybe you're on vacation, you come back and you kind of, you got to load up your phone and you're like, Oh please. You know, and uh, they were down two nothing early, but had a really gutty win um, being the flyers in Philadelphia in the shootout. But I think it's, I think even though hockey is getting, you know, we're approaching now, we're in February, approaching deadlines, March. Obviously, the Henry, Henrik Lundquist injury comes out. He's going to be out for three weeks for the Rangers, and things getting much tighter in the Metropolitan Division between the Islanders, Penguins, and Rangers. It now feels like baseball season. You know, now yeah. it's the idea of pitchers and catchers coming, and, you know, the interviews with the players and the managers, you start to see more of that in these articles, and the pictures of uh, the bright sunshine in Port St. Lucie and Tampa. So... Even though things are getting more interesting when it comes to hockey, obviously the basketball season. You're gonna have the All-Star game here locally in New York City, but it now feels like baseball season, at least the start. And we, we are jumping full in. If this is really the official kickoff of the 2015 season on the Weekend Watchdogs, Uh, joining us later this hour, Kevin Kernan of the New York Post at Wears Kernan. He's down in Florida. Couldn't have picked a better week to be down in Florida. He's been catching up mainly with the Mets. I'm sure he'll be catching up with the Yankees as he travels through the state and uh, we'll, we'll talk about both the Mets and the Yankees with Kevin. Some really great work. If you haven't had a chance to see Kevin uh, or read Kevin this week, so I suggest you go to NewYorkPost.com, click on his name. And uh, I had interviews with John Neese and Travis Darno and Jacob, uh, Jacob DeGron, David Wright, Lucas Duda. Uh, but we will also talk Yankees as uh, Brian Cashman came out and has uh, had his first, I would say state of the union on WFAN yesterday. So we'll talk Yankees as well. So some baseball here the first hour, uh, you know, it is February, Joe. And, uh, You know, football is over, but we should at least address for a few minutes. And and like I said before, it's almost like eating your turkey leftovers on December 5th when you talk about the Super Bowl almost a full week after it happened. But great game. I didn't win any money on my boxes. Uh, You know, interesting. It it seemed like every commercial we talked about, and we probably saw most of them before the game anyway, every commercial was tugging at your heartstrings. Uh, If you had a a teenage daughter, she probably enjoyed the Katy Perry concert, so it was a a, a moment for the entire family. Um, But here's the deal. It's amazing how sports could be, and it ties into whatever situation you want to talk about, any sport. If that interception does not happen, and uh, Rashawn Lynch barrels in for a touchdown, if that call is made by Pete Carroll, Tom Brady's viewed completely different, Bill Belichick's viewed completely different, and the whole theme of sports in this dead month, this month with sports fans recharge, is more about the Patriots' failures and probably questions about Brady than it is about the bad call. And the funny part is, Brady's performance didn't change. A bad play call, arguably, of course, is what changed. So it tells you how fine the line is and how talk radio could shift the narrative, really when the facts were, it was a great game, it was well coached, and uh, it came down to a final play. You can't ask for more than that in a big Super Bowl matchup. You really can't. An interception by an undrafted rookie is what cemented Tom Brady as the greatest quarterback ever. Who would have? thought? And that's all you did. have to say. And then that's and that's kind of the fine line you're talking about is that. And I'm not sure. I got an opportunity last yesterday. Got back, um, you know, to my apartment around around four or so from the airport, and uh, put on sound effects on NFL Network and. Um, it's, I think it's great now what they do right after the Super Bowl ends, a couple of days later, they have all the sound. They do a great job, um, you know, an hour-long program, breaking down the Super Bowl, and this is one of the better ones. And the takeaways from that was, first off, that last play, and prior to after – after Jermaine Curse makes the catch, the, you know, the David Tyree 2.0, although Tyree's catch, I think, was harder. This was just kind of more flukier. And also yep. Tyreek Tyree catch had the first element of Eli getting out where it looked like he was surely going to be sacked and somehow emerging from that to throw the pass. After that happens, they call timeout, they're on the sideline, and you have Russell Wilson talking with, you know, Darryl Bevel, the offensive coordinator, and he's saying, we're going to run it here, we're going to, then we're going to throw it. So they had that plan and that mindset before the series even started that, hey, we're going to run it on first down, second down's going to be a pass, and that's going to give us the option to do whatever we want to do on third and fourth with one timeout left. And I understand the criticism. Certainly everyone made the same comment as it happened. How do you not give it to Marshawn Lynch, especially after he had gone five yards down to the one-yard line on the first drive, and it looked like the Patriots were not going to call timeout. They felt they had a better opportunity of stopping them goal line than they would have been coming down the field for a field goal against the Seattle defense with 20, 30 seconds left. But when you understand it time-wise, if Lynch gets stopped on second down and they don't get in, they either have to call their timeout or rush back to the line with the time dwindling down. They're going to have to throw it probably at some point either on fourth down or before that to stop the clock because they burned that timeout um, at the 50-yard line after the initial Lynch catch. They started the drive, they had three timeouts, and then after the two-minute warning, they ran a play and they had to call another timeout, which burnt their first one. If they had two timeouts as opposed to one timeout in the situation, they probably, they probably run the probably ball it. three straight times. Right. Uh, but right. because of the one timeout, it really is, from a coaching standpoint, it made a lot of sense. What you can criticize is a type of call, throwing a quick slant like that, in the middle of the field where something can go off someone's shoulder, where it could get popped up in the air and intercepted. Why not throw a fade to the corner? Why not roll out Russell Wilson on a sprint right option of play action where if it's wide open to the tight end, great. If not, hey, we got two other chances to run the ball. That's where the criticism, the criticism is. But the kid, Malcolm Butler, made an all-time play, Mike. Even an all-time play, and he wasn't even going to be in the game. They changed him out at the last second. That's on sound effects as well. For that play, they call him in. And the kid was only in the game because Kyle Arrington was having a miserable game against against Chris Matthews. Right. So all those right. factors played in, and a, I Chris Matthews,
0: this, was a oh, Footlocker
1: wow. employee, Footlocker employee, uh, <laughs> uh, basically, you know, making plays at the Super Bowl. It just, it was so many different, uh, of, I guess, again, narratives that sometimes we criticize. But it was a fun game, and I really got to tell you, if it, it, it might hurt if you're a Seahawks fan, but you have a Super Bowl under your belt. I don't think this is going to hurt as much. I mean, again, it's easy for me Ooh, to say. I had no skin in the game, Mike. but you won. I mean, you. It's not like this is your loss. first. You think you don't think the Super Bowl last year padded the pain a little bit or gave you some methadone for the pain? I, I mean, it hurts, no doubt. But I don't know. Unless you're in the hey, we could have been a dynasty. Now that's that's off the table at least temporarily. That's I don't the part think, that hurts. I don't think Super Bowl have. Had like Super Bowl loss. Super Bowl loss, I don't think there is any padding the pain for Super Bowl losses. You know, it's one game. You don't know when you're gonna get back there. Um, it's. Not, I think it's such a big stage. I don't see how you that, that's padded if you're a Seattle Seahawks fan. I think it's devastating. I thought of that. Listen, I'm Giants. won in 2007. If they would have lost that way in 2011, I know it's three years removed, not one year removed. That would have been a devastating loss. That would have taken a long time to get over. And most of the conversation in the aftermath of the game, now you can say now, you know, legacy, greatest coach of all time, greatest quarterback of all time, you know, four Super Bowl wins, six games for the Patriots, all this. Most of the rhetoric, most of the talk after the game about the Seattle play call, and actually took away a little bit from what the Patriots accomplished because people couldn't get over that for the first two days after the game. All in the Sunday all night, and all day, for- Monday, and Tuesday they were so on the, the, the precipice not about of getting t- blown out. They were on the precipice of getting blown out. I mean, a 10-point deficit, uh, you know, you don't uh, make a move there. You don't make defensive stops. You're down 17 points. And you're down 17 mm-hmm. points. Even if you're down two touchdowns, I think it's a lot different uh, of a game.
0: Hey, so, greatest I mean, that's greatest department.
1: comeback Greatest comeback in Super Bowl history in terms of points. You know, tight points tied to a couple of other games. but one of those games was, you know, the Redskins-Broncos Super Bowl. Super Bowl 22, where it was 10 nothing in the first quarter, and then and they, you know, they blitzed 35 straight. Yeah, Ten points, yeah. fourth quarter, against what is perceived to be the best defense in the NFL. I mean, what Brady did, most completions in the Super Bowl. Again, we talked about this leading up to the game, Mike, about how they can change their game plan week to week based upon the personnel that they're playing. And they knew that they were probably going to be unable to run the ball or LeGarrette Blount, and that they were going to have to rely on short, quick passing throughout the game. And Julian Edelman, I mean, I understand Tom is going to get the MVP when he throws four, four touchdown passes in the Super Bowl, but Julian Edelman was the most important player on the field, even more so than Robert Minkowski. He made those big plays on those final drives. He looked like he was concussed, and he, you know, he stayed out there a couple times. And he was a winner, and he's a former quarterback, where you played at Kent State, you watch the sound effects, and he's going up and down the sideline in the huddle the same way you would expect your quarterback to be. You know, and may you think about Jets fans, and you have, you know, the Patriots have probably two or three guys in that huddle that are doing what maybe Geno Smith never does. In, in, yeah, in who the are not even the quarterback. Yet. Yeah, that is amazing. They got here's winners, thing, they got football players. Here's one thing that always comes up, and maybe we've talked about this last year. I don't remember. Uh, And Francesa brings it up all the time, and I disagree with him on this, and his whole point is it's almost better to lose in a championship game than the Super Bowl. And I don't get that. Now, for the Seahawks, it's different. They won the year before. So, again, I still think it hurts, but it doesn't hurt as much. But if you look at a team like the Buffalo Bills and Jim Kelly and Marv Levy and all those guys, if those guys lose four straight championship games, are we talking about them? At least that team is talked about, even though they lost the Super Bowl. I mean, think of Elway before he won later in his career. He was in the Super Bowl. He was talked about. I don't think you talk about teams that lost championship games. People are not talking about the San Francisco 49ers when they lost to the Giants. Um, but they lost. They're out of it. Uh, you know, nobody – you know, I, I, I don't understand. You know, Andy Reid uh, uh, lost some, uh, cha- you know, playoff games before. A lot uh, of You know, the they went games. to the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, a lot of games. Nobody talked about those guys until they made it to the Super Bowl with McNabb and what have you. Um you know, so I don't get it. I mean what you know, where well, where is this idea that, that it's better to lose than try? And try to probably, win? probably it's probably the biggest difference between winning the Super Bowl and losing the Super Bowl in any other game, because it's a one and done situation and not a best of seven series like it is in all the other sports. So I think the difference between being the Super Bowl winner and being the Super Bowl loser is probably wider than losing the World Series in six games. As opposed to winning it because it's just a one game deal um so maybe that is where i agree with it that what what winning one lombardi trophy does for you as a player as, as a quarterback as a coach it's probably larger in football than it is maybe in other sports because of the kind of attention that those positions get compared to being you know baseball's a type of sport hockey's a type of sport maybe basketball in some ways is, is more along the lines where it's much more about the player winning the title than the team but some of these other sports you know you're not going to hold it against Mike Piazza for never winning a world series or you know it Ernie Banks no hold it against win. yeah you get held against as a quarterback in football So the difference of being, exactly so the difference of being a Super Bowl winning head coach and a Super Bowl winning quarterback and not in that one game I think it's probably the widest separation all the sports but to your point i mean if you lost the championship game i think it hurts more now the giants have never lost the championship game the new york giants they've lost obviously Super right. Bowl 35 i i hated as a Mets fan i hated losing in the N- nlcs in 2006 and having to know there's still a world series left to play i almost it like the finality is that on it. You, yeah. get the whole, you get the whole trip, all those, everything leading up to it, the pomp and circumstance leading up to it. You know, at least when they lost to the Yankees in 2000, baseball was over, oh, that was it. Now, yeah, now most of the it. time, you don't have to deal with a parade in your own city <laughs> too. Wow, You kind of block that sport. out. You know, but usually right. it's over, it's all, all over. Um, when there's another game left to play, two more weeks of hype, man like if you was an nfc championship game afc championship game you're not you don't want to watch any super bowl coverage and that's going to go on for two weeks and a half and it'll drive you no you know what i enjoyed the most about super bowl sunday i watched the puppy bowl that to me was much better that, that i could have been very content watching the puppy bowl over any of the pregame at that point now maybe you disagree but i i actually enjoyed it they have fa- here's the funny part joe before we take a break cuz we have kevin kernan from the new york post coming up they actually do fantasy stats for the Puppy Bowl. Could you believe that? That's the world we're in right now. There's fantasy stats for a bunch of puppies and dogs <laughs> running around a makeshift field playing with toys. And I think the final score was something like 90 to like, you know, 60. So high-scoring event, the Puppy Bowl. So uh, if you take haven't the watched it, Joe, you should you should have taken the over on that. But anyway, uh, let's take a break, a quick break. When we return, it may be snowing. We may be less than a week from Football, but we will talk baseball. We'll kick off the 2015 baseball season with uh, Kevin Kern of the New York Post. He's down in Florida, had some great pieces this week, catching up with a number of the Mets. We'll also talk Yankees with him. So, a lot to get to as we take you all the way up till noon. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs, Mike Silva, Joe Bono. We'll be right back.
0: It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Every Saturday between 10 and noon, Mike Silva and Joe Bono bring you the Weekend Sports with a New York slant. A one-stop shop of quality commentary, hard-hitting debates, intelligent guests, and entertaining pop culture references. Go to weekendwatchdogs.com for an archive of the latest shows, iTunes subscription, and to contact the show. It's Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Sova and Joe Bono. Don't miss it.
1: Mike Silva, Joe Bono, Weekend Watch Dogs. Check us out live on replay at weekendwatchdogs.com. We'll take calls later. The number is 646-716-8187. And joining us from uh, sunny Florida, I wish I was there instead of where I am right now, Kevin Kern of the New York Post. Kevin, Mike Silva, Joe Bono, how you doing this Saturday morning? What's going on?
3: All right, Joe. Doing great. Uh, you know, just somebody's got to be in Florida, so might as well be me. I
1: can't. can't can't disagree Kevin. Now here's the deal. It's nice, you know, and and I mean this sincerely. You had some great pieces this week at the New York Post. In a, in a, an environment now where all off season, it's like, you know, about contracts and 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 all the the fantasy baseball aspect of of baseball and and some of the things that are necessary but they just drive you nuts about, you know, asset allocation and all this stuff. You had a chance just to talk about the game with a number of members of the Mets and it's refreshing. It must be refreshing for you too, who's a, I know. In talking to you, is a is a big baseball junkie.
3: That's true, Mike. And uh, I think that you know, baseball's gotten away with its coverage and reporting of baseball. Unfortunately, it's gotten away from baseball, and uh, you know, it's become uh, it's become a math class. It's become this. It's become that. But uh, there's nothing better than coming down here early. And spending quality time with guys, even if it's only 10, 15, 20 minutes, but you're not in a pack with eight reporters, with one guy who doesn't know what the hell he's talking about asking questions, another guy who's totally locked in on minor leagues asking questions, another guy who uh, doesn't even know what he, uh, you know, uh, what the player is capable of doing in the right questions. Uh, you can ask your own questions, and and you rise or fail on whatever you ask. And uh, and and you know, I've had a chance. You know, I wish it was. You know, I wish the Yankees were this open during this time of year. But uh, I did get a chance to go see Didi Gregorius in Curacao, and that was a refreshing uh, experience. But the, the players I've talked to with the Mets, and I know they're. You know, I know it's spring training. It's so nice to spring training, but Everybody's got their eyes. Uh, you know, they're very positive right now. But there are some good things happening here, team wise. And talent-wise, I mean, I, you know, I got, I, I, I'm totally honest. I misread Lucas Duda. I, I didn't realize he had the fire that burned inside him. I knew he was a big guy, strong, but I didn't know he had this desire and this work ethic that is off the charts, you know. And uh, that's, I think, how he got to be where he got last year. And he's worked even better this year. I'm sitting and talking with him. When I asked him, can you do this again, it wasn't like, you know, he gave me some politically correct answer. He said, absolutely, you know, and he's shooting for bigger and better things. But at the end of it, he also said, you know, gave you the old as long as we make the playoffs, I'm happy thing. But clearly with this lineup, if they're going to make the playoffs, Lucas Duda has to have a monster season.
1: Kevin, let's talk about your story in the paper today regarding Wilmer Flores. And uh, obviously throughout this offseason, you know, Sandy Alderson has made jokes about the lack of a shortstop. It's the perceived big hole on the team offensively and defensively. But you had a story about Wilmer Flores in the 51 games he played at the position last year. He really proved a lot to himself and gave himself a lot of confidence that he feels he can do beyond an adequate job at shortstop What were your perceptions, speaking with Flores, and how he's looking forward to this year being the everyday shortstop for the Mets?
3: Well, he's approaching it uh, exactly the way you're supposed to approach it. Don't forget, when Jose Reyes left, the the job was handed to Tahad on a silver platter. Tahad came in basically, he came in on time to camp, but he came in a little late the first, uh, technically late, because everybody else was there. Um... Then he comes in out of shape. Last year he worked at the Barber's Camp in Michigan, but he still wasn't in the top shape. Whereas Wilmer Flores has taken the approach, I'm getting a golden opportunity here for my career, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to try to make it work. And just that alone puts him ahead of Tejada right now. Now, I will say this, Tejada's been here working too. I've been uh, keeping an eye on him here and there, and, he, and he's finally, he appears to finally get it, but it may be too late for him with the Mets. And I don't know if he'll get that opportunity. Flores is going to get his opportunity. So I've always felt Flores could hit. You know, there's no doubt in my mind he can hit adequately for a shortstop. Um, And he's learning about positioning. Last year when I saw him set up, his feet were out of position. They were faced the wrong way. He was doing all the little basic things wrong. This year he's come a long way. He's still not going to have great range or even good range maybe, you know, just adequate range. But uh, at least he's he's, – he looks and is acting a little bit more like a shortstop, not afraid of the position. And that's a key word here, too. I mean, Travis Arneau told me earlier this week, and I said, what, what was the big difference between you, uh, pre- when, before you were sent to the minors after you came back? He said, I wasn't afraid of the plate anymore. And, he, and by that, he doesn't mean being afraid of being hit by pitches or anything like that, but being afraid to do what he does best. So once these guys get through that initial, they have to break through that barrier. Um, I always say when young players come up, they give way too much credit to the opposition uh, because they're in the major leagues and they kind of play a little scared and it really sets them back. So both Flores and, and, and Donneau, uh have the attitude like, okay, I belong here. I just have to, you know, I have to do the job.
1: Joining us is Kevin Kern of the New York Post. He's down in Florida, caught up with a number of the Mets uh, this past week. You mentioned uh, Flores' outlook and almost grabbing his career by the horns. And you mentioned the Barwis camp, Mike Barwis, and then you were uh, on this about a month ago when you talked to David Wright. There's been some talk about the camp, uh, you know, the players have to subsidize in it, and, and Sandy Olison basically saying, hey, you know, we're spending $100,000 here, uh, but we want the players to invest in their careers as well. Uh, give, we know I know that players invest in their careers from standpoint of going and getting trainers and what have you. Uh, what is your take, because there's a lot of questions about, Are the Mets Mets hugging the line here with, you know, potentially forcing players to do an expensive program that if you're a minor leaguer, you may or may not be able to afford?
3: Well, Mike, I'm glad you asked me this, because I I think that that perception of that story to me is the biggest bunch of baloney I think I've ever heard in covering sports. This is a situation. I came down – let's backtrack here a little bit. I came down – when I after I got back with Dede Gregorius, I, came, I flew back to Miami. Decided to drive up here and take a look. A good reporter always takes a look at the camp. I went out to the camp. All of a sudden, I see this thing in right field. Barbers methods. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I, I investigate. I go inside. I talk to some people. Uh, I learn something. I see Terry Collins uh, later that day. I ask him about it. He explains it to me. So then I then I get the idea in my mind. Let me come back a month later. So. Um, A month later, I said, and mainly it was a David Wright story. It was was getting me access to David Wright. That's why I wanted to write that story, because David hadn't really talked about his offseason, where he was, his shoulder, and and seeing pictures of him swinging and everything else. So, and Wright brought it up, and I knew it already. The players have to pay for this. They think, at least the guys that are veteran players that are making millions, by the way, most of them. And, um, you know, uh, when, when we'll, we go back in time, players in the offseason had jobs. Uh, they couldn't afford to do this stuff. Well, well their job now is one, one Met told me, my job is baseball. I need to invest in my job. So he has no qualms uh, paying for this. And every man I've talked to down here has raved about this. Now, I'm not saying this is, I certainly don't want to endorse and say this is going to work and this is going to make them a better team. But all I'm telling you is the players love it. They love what they the, the 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 fact they have a place to work. They can walk 100 yards and get right to the baseball activities. They love the fact that they these are a dedicated crew. And let's point this out, Mike, too. Um, this isn't just uh, you know one guy standing at the door collecting money as the Mets go in, pay as you go type thing. There's a I watched them work. There's six or seven trainers that I saw working with these groups, young guys, uh, older guys, uh, you know. This is uh, this is there's a lot of guys working here. These guys deserve to get paid too, and I think the Mets, from what I've heard, you know, basically, uh, you know, I do subsidize a portion of the, the minor leaguers. You also get travel expenses, I believe, or, and you also get uh, you know a place to stay. So if I'm a player, I, I make sure I'm at this camp. I don't even think twice about it. And if you don't go to the camp, then that, that, shame on you. Unless you have a great off-season system that you're already happy with, Now I would never say you have to come here. But, perfect example, Flores, he went down and played some, some winter ball, and he came back here twice. You know what happens when guys play winter ball over a long period of time? They get in bad habits, they, you know, sometimes it helps you, but sometimes it can hurt you. Here, you're actually working on some things that are going to make you a better player. So, I think you, you had a reaction a little bit from, player, from people, you know, they immediately went to the negative side of this, because they weren't down here doing the story that I did, and so how it helped these guys. So, but that's the world we live in today. So that, that's my little rant on that. And uh, that's where it stands. And if I'm a Mets fan, I'm happy my guys are working out. It's that simple.
1: Weekend Watchdogs, Joe Bono, Mike Silver chatting with New York Post, Kevin Kernan. Um, last question on the Mets. and I think we want to talk a little bit about the Yankees as well. Um, but Joel Sherman today, uh, this week also talked about both teams and looking at their off seasons and, you know, said how, the Mets and their front office are, again, kind of going into this year, just imagining the rosiest of scenarios and not really protecting themselves when that scenario does not play out. Um, Sandy Alderson saying, again, kind of in a comical way, that 89, goal, 89 wins is the goal this year. Do you think they've done enough? Is it just um adding a piece like John Mayberry as, as the bench guy and just hoping the pitching gets better? There's bounce-back seasons from Wright and Granderson. And that other players, either like Lucas Duda, as you mentioned, maintain their levels of of success and other guys take another step forward like Travis Ternot, have they done enough in your mind to make themselves a true playoff contender for that first or second wild card?
3: If you talk to Mets fun office people, they will tell you they wanted to do more. It just didn't work out for whatever reason, money, whatever, people deciding to go wherever they went. Um, Probably a myriad of reasons for that. You always want to do more. So never—it's never a point where they've done enough where they're satisfied. They're ready to rock and roll. You know, even the Nationals did more this year, and look where they're coming from. Look at the um, look at the Giants. Um, the Giants kind of have a belief that their young players will come through. They'll make a key signing here and there. They lost Sandoval, so they obviously went backwards in that respect. Things change year to year. I think what reading what I reading between the lines, talking to Alderson, talking to some other people in the, in the front office, what you're seeing is basically the Mets feel that they have some pieces that are better than anything they could get out there anyway. And here's the key, Mike. If they're going to make a trade for somebody, everybody that comes in this store for a trade, one of the, on the opposing team, they're all doing the same thing. They're asking for Syndergaard. They don't want to trade Syndergaard. That's their right. You know, they traded for Syndergaard. Their point is, you know what? Our second level... Our second-level talent uh, uh, prospects is better than a lot of teams' one-A prospect. So why don't we get? The, why don't? Why doesn't the market come to us and consider us that way? But teams don't do that. They just basically go to the top prospect, the number two prospect. Obviously, Syndergaard, Matt, are right up there as the top guys. And the Mets don't want to deal those guys. And that, and you know what? Uh, I give them credit for not. Me. I wouldn't tra- There's no way in the world I would trade Syndergaard for Ian Desmond, Rental. I mean, that's that's absolutely ludicrous. And then you get fans that say, "Well, uh, you know, if he spends a year with the Mets, who, you know, maybe he'll like it. They sign him a long time. Do you think the Mets are going to run out and spend 100 million on a shortstop in this in this climate? That they, you know, we know who the Mets are. We have to accept it, be realistic about it. That's who they are. And if it doesn't work, then we blast them. It's that simple.
1: No, that's that's a great way of putting it, Kevin. And uh, moving across to the Yankees, and I know this isn't going to happen, but. I'm going to try to take a baseball perspective on A-Rod. I was listening to Cashman talk. He gave a little bit of a mini State of the Union on the radio here uh, yesterday. And you could look at it. A-Rod's coming back, steroids. You could talk about the contract and whether the Yankees want him and the milestones and everything. But think about a player of A-Rod's caliber, what he's been through, and the fact that he's basically coming back. Now, he's making a lot of money for the next three years, so no one's feeling sorry for him. But he has to reprove himself. And if he's healthy, I mean, how many players who are 40, if he's healthy, can have the resume and potentially produce at the level of, a, of an A-Rod? I think it's interesting because he's, he hasn't been in this situation since probably when he first was signed, and maybe not even then because he was a top pick.
3: Absolutely. And, you, and uh, Mike, uh, you are talking to probably the only reporter who has spent some time with A-Rod this, uh, this winter. You know, I went down there a few weeks ago, ran him down, spent some time with him, had some conversations with him, limited to what I could write because there were certain things, you know, he didn't really, uh, he didn't really want to say too much because his attitude now is, you know what, Uh, I've come this far, I've been quiet, I'm coming off a suspension, I don't need to uh, rock the boat, so to speak. But there, you know, I know for a fact that this guy, uh, because I saw him work, I know for a fact this guy is, is is so bound and determined to succeed. And the to your point, that's what I've been saying. <laughs> this, why not take a shot with a guy who wants to succeed and is driven like you wouldn't believe. And he has a resume. He has a, now he has he has ser- stirred stains on a resume. He has issues. But he obviously was a talented player at one time without anything else. If he can get back or whatever, you know, if he can at least be de- some semblance of who A-Rod was, and he's still strong and big. You know, I've seen him. Um, It's not like uh, we're not talking about guys who, you know, and I won't name names, but through the steroid era, you know, I run into guys who you see guys on TV who are football analysts and stuff like this. I remember them being big guys. You see them all of a sudden, you're bigger than they are. You know, A-Rod is still a large man, you know, and he's got strength. He's got power on his own. Um, It's going to be very interesting to see what transpires here. If those hips can fire, and to me that's the essential key. If the hips fire correctly, and he keeps 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 that part of his body together, I think he could be he could be an adequate uh, certainly DH, and, and may even have some real nice success. I think I think in his mind he thinks like for example the uh, six home runs that Willie Mays, that, That's already you know that's a given, you know, and he thinks that he'll um, he'll basically have uh, success as long as he can stay healthy. But when I sit and talk to the Mets and Lucas Duda and other guys, what, the first thing they tell me is we got to stay healthy. They rise to the same boat. 39, going on 40, got the two hip surgeries. Can he stay healthy? I don't know if he can, but if he can, he's going to be effective.
1: Kevin, noticed a few years ago, you know, three, four years ago, the Yankees arguably had one of the greatest offensive infields of all time with Teixeira and Cano and Jeter and Alex Rodriguez you know, this year you're going to go into the season with, you know, Headley and Gregorius and, you know, Stephen Drew at second and Teixeira, and who knows what you're going to get out of him. Um, when you look at this team offensively and the amount of injury concerns and the amount of bounce back seasons they need, um, where are the Yankees in your minds heading into this year in terms of expectations?
3: They're a much bigger question mark than the Mets, to be quite honest. I think they, they uh, to me, their pitching is extremely questionable. Uh, and you've had me on before. You know how I feel about Cano, and I'm not a Johnny Come Lately. I said it from day one. Losing Cano was disastrous. I don't know what they were thinking. Um, you know, they they spent more money now on on guys to try to replace Cano and other parts of the lineup than if they just would have given Cano when he called them back and told them uh, what he was getting offered from the Seattle. They had not match Seattle's, but come out a little bit higher, they would already have already had Cano. You can't just give away Cano. I, I, don't, I don't think you can. I know he's going to be older at the end of the contract. Big deal. Uh, they lost the heart and soul, of a guy who was ready to uh, be, lead in so many ways. I ran into Tommy McNamara, the scouting director of the uh, of, uh, of Seattle, uh, last week before I came down here. And, um, and he told me, he said, everything he told me about Cano was true. He is a leader. He was ready to lead. And that that was obvious because that's what I knew of Cano because I spent time with these guys and talked to them. I'm not just looking at a computer, looking at uh, like a lot of baseball officials are doing nowadays, just looking at numbers, computers, and forget about the human element. And uh, the Yankees misread Cano dramatically, made a huge mistake. Are they going to be able to climb out of that? I don't know. But they had to get younger. They got a little younger with Didi Gregorius. Obviously, that's going to... You know, they're going to be better defensively at shortstop. DD's got to show he can hit lefties. Drew, I don't know what the heck happened there. I mean, he, he's, his career went completely off the tracks. You know, I was, I was, uh, I, I thought he would be a good signing for people last year, but he couldn't, he couldn't, it couldn't do anything. Maybe it shows you the value of uh, really getting in a rhythm right from the start with spring training. So, question mark after question mark after question mark during the Yankees lineup. But if it's not, Talent question marks, it's can they bounce back from serious injuries? Um, Do they have enough power? Do they have enough, you know, certainly in the outfields they have, Beltran is is key. The fact he can extend his elbow again uh, should make him a much better hitter. So I expect good things out of Beltran. But he's also at the age where tomorrow something else can go blow out. So uh, the Yankees have as many question marks, if not more, than the Mets, and uh, they have a lot to prove to me.
1: Kevin, one last thing, and you you actually segued to my last question during that response, was Rob Manfred made some uh, some remarks about possibly looking at this shift and offense being down. And, you know, in a day and age where you can have a computer program like Bloomberg Sports and you know exactly where a hitter is going to put the ball, it's not anecdotal, it's there, and you can position defenses. The question comes up, are we into the neutral zone trap era of baseball or the hand check era of baseball? Um, but you're a guy that's seen players work, and, and, and maybe it's time to get back to the roots and hit the other way and, and, and hit around the shift and, and things that can be done just from a developmental standpoint. Joe Girardi actually talked a little bit about it yesterday uh, during the interview. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, is, is, a change need, is there rules changes that need to be made, or is this just something that's a cycle and, and maybe with some good coaching, uh, we won't be talking about this in, in two, three years?
3: Yes. Uh, that's a good question, Mike, and the, uh, it's absolutely hilarious to me. I've been talking about this from day one. Uh, it shows how dumb baseball can be, though. Uh, just hit the ball the other way. Do some things. You know, uh, it, it, there's times, so obviously, where you've got to swing for the big fly. I understand that. But the easiest thing in the world is to beat this shift if they put their mind to it and their, and their abilities to it. And it's not just baseball management people. When I say baseball, I'm, I'm taking the players into account here too. As well, I mean, um, you know, the problem with me is I've seen baseball from basically remembering it in a very vivid fashion from 1960 on. So I saw players, you know, hit it, you know, use the whole field. There's nothing better when you're a hitter uh, to see green in front of you and, and know you got a lot of spots to hit. Now these guys that are the pole hitters, and the uh, you know the McCanns of the world and Teixeira's, you know. They have to be who they are, so I understand to a certain extent. But you can beat this shift in so many ways if you put your mind to it and if you're committed to it as a hitter. Uh, you know, Let the ball travel in a little bit more. Hit it the other way with some power. Perfect example, and I, you know, I'm getting back to Robinson Cano right now. What did they do to Robinson Cano this year? They pitched him away dramatically. What did Robinson Cano do? Was he a dope and just tried to pull everything and strike out and not hit? Oh, he hit the ball the other way. He lost some power. Everybody was, uh, you know, where did his home runs go? Where did his home runs go? Well, they became doubles the other way or singles the other way. He became a, he's a smart hitter. Be smarter. We, we have raised a generation of, um, of uh, showcase swingers that just swing like they're at a showcase, want to impress the scouts, hit the ball as far as they can. Well, how about getting a base hit? Use the whole field. And how about this too, Mike, and, and Johnny Damon was great at this, and Johnny and I have had many conversations, had a couple conversations about this, and I had some conversations with Ellsbury about this. When the shift is on and you're on first base and they're shifting one of your guys, well, you know, steal second, stand up, and steal third too, It's all in the same play. If they got the, if they got the third baseman at second base, all you got to do is get up and beat them to the third. I mean, so players and teams have to come up with an approach to beat the shift. And the worst thing baseball could do is to put in a legal defense or something like that. That's that's ludicrous. If that happens, um, then it's an easy way out, and I, I don't see that happening. And and that's what I would do if I were in charge of teams. But I'm not in charge of anything. I just report on it.
1: Kevin, are you going to be in Florida next week? Give the listeners an idea of what you're what's coming up at the you know where's at where's yeah. Kernan on Twitter, uh, and obviously it the New York Post.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, where's Kernan? You can always find. And again, I, I'm not your average guy. I try to put some food in there. Some uh, some artwork in there, some pictures, some places I've been, kind of put you there when you're freezing your buns off up there. And um, I, I will be in Florida for quite a while, I, I would imagine, right now. I, I will be going home. I will be taking a break here and there. Um, but right now, you know, um, you know, I'll be here next week with the Mets. Don't forget we have the Matt Harvey arrival at some point, and um, that's going to be an interesting day. And, you know, following him will be very interesting because that's what this, for the Mets, so in a lot of ways that's what this spring training is about. So uh, from there, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll gather, you know, I'll go all over the place, all over Florida, and um, hit a lot of different camps, including, of course, the Yankees, and back and forth between the Yankees and Mets. So I'll be be down here for quite a while. You know, and like I said earlier, as we opened up, you know, it's tough, but somebody has to do it.
1: Kevin, you're uh, very generous of your time. Thank you. Uh, You're one of my favorites, and uh, let's do it again as the season progresses. All righty?
3: Okay, Mike, any time. Take care.
1: That's Kevin Kernan, New York Post, gave us a lot to talk about, Joe. Um, Let's take a quick break. If you guys want to chime in with your thoughts, let's keep it to baseball. Um, 646-716-8187 is the number. We're taking you all the way up to noon. And as always, you can continue to listen to the show live on a replay at weekendwatchdogs.com. We'll be right back. Legendary Boston Globe columnist Bob Ryan joined the Weekend Watchdogs. Is the game worse? Is it different? You know, What is your opinion on where the NBA has gone? It's still the best basketball in the world with the, with the best athletic
4: basketball players, and the coaching is phenomenal. Uh, it, it, the defenses are sophisticated. It's hard to score in this league now. What I don't like about the game and why I don't like it as much as I once did, but I still like it is the, uh, the, the three-point shot has completely taken over the game. It's distorted the game at every level. I, 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 would, I, I know it's, we're never going to get rid of it, but I, I just don't think it's been a good thing for the game, uh, and it's caused the style of play. Uh, and that it's not as enjoyable as it once was. The, the, the disappearance of true post people uh, is, a, is a problem, uh, and the
1: biggest, biggest thing is the, the lost art of the true fast break. To hear guests on the NBA and more, tune in to the Weekend Watchdogs every Saturday, ten to noon on Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Mike Silva, Joe Bono, Weekend Watch Dogs, taking up to noon, at Mike Silva Media on Twitter, at jbono611, send us a tweet, we're checking it throughout the show, and Joe, I gotta tell you, I always enjoy Kevin's uh, segments, but he gave us a lot, I mean, we were afraid, oh, it's February, the Super Bowl's over, I mean, maybe we could, you know, we have a fun segment about baseball cards in the second hour, which we'll we'll tease in a little bit, Uh, obviously Mojo calls in, and who knows where that goes, but, he gave us a lot there. I thought Kevin was chock full of information. It's a good segment. And know, you know what? There is a lot going on with these two teams. And, you know, I think the statement he made that the Yankees are a much bigger question mark than the Mets, in a <laughs> lot of ways, that, that's, that's true. Now, it might not end up, I'm not saying right now, if you said, hey, who's going to win more games than if I would necessarily pick the Mets with such confidence and gusto, But at the same time, you look at both lineup questions and starting rotation questions for the Yankees there are more questions there than the Mets because the Mets' starting rotation, given the depth and what people have done uh, last year in their careers, you expect to be very, very good. And you know what kind of a worst-case scenario looks for the Mets offensively, and I think they're going to be better than that just by simply having Kondyar in there and having Flores at shortstop being part of that offense. The Yankees' offense right now, not knowing what you're going to get out of Teixeira, McCann in the first half was awful, awful last year. Can he be better? Certainly um, you're going to have to get him, but he's an aging catcher. Beltron health issues, age issues there. Um, Gregorius obviously being a lot of expectations, being the guy replacing Jeter, what he can give you offensively. Chase Headley, and obviously, you know, Alex Rodriguez. Uh, other than Ellsbury and Brett Gardner, there's really not one sure thing in the Yankee offense. Going into 2015, you sound you're starting to sound like me. All those promos with the bark and the bite, and all the time on this show, it only took me a year and a half. You finally had your come to moment on the Weekend Watchdog about the Yankees. What what was this? Did you find this out down in Mexico City this week? Did, did you happen to did Kevin Kernan convert you? Where did I have the Joe Bono conversion you, here? You continue to misconstrue that argument to whatever you want to feel like that day that argument was about whether or not they would spend more money to fill their holes which they continue to do it is that the players available aren't as good as the players available that there used to be that's what it comes down we didn't get it it's interesting we didn't ask kevin and maybe shame on us about the cuban about young mercado or Shields. we didn't really get into that with the yankees because i want i asked the shift question which i you know look Kevin, and, uh, Kevin, I, I, you know, he's plugged in, but nobody knows. You know, Castro's playing this the best. Nobody knows if they should go and sign a hundred million dollar Cuban defector uh, or not. But I will say this: uh, since you, it's more. You know, and I want to make a p- comment on the Mets, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this: Arod, if he's healthy, and the hips are such a huge if. And I agree with Kevin. I've never had an issue with Arod's work ethic, a Arod, it's always been between the ears and the stuff surrounding him that he creates his own distractions that put more pressure on himself. If the guy could give you 20 home runs and 75 RBIs in his current offensive climate, as a designated hitter, perhaps be able to play an adequate third base, that is a huge amount of production in today's climate. I mean, if I told any team in baseball, well, let's keep it to the American League. Here's that right-handed DH who could hit you 20 home runs. You're going to say, I don't want him? So, you know, this, the whole story will be about steroids and page six stuff, but I think it's fascinating his ability to potentially contribute. And for the first time in his career, Joe, he's an underdog and he's never been an underdog. And I think he's actually more, I mean, I, as a joke, I wore the forgive t-shirt. We had bald Vinny on after the season, but I think he's actually, uh, at least for me, you know, a likable story this time. I don't know if he's a likable story or a sympathetic character, uh, from a purely baseball standpoint, yeah, the upside of Alex Rodriguez as designated hitter. Um, you don't likely surpasses. You're not rooting for A Rod to shove it to some of the sanctimonious members of the media? From a storyline perspective, I think it would be great to just watch and what people's reactions would be and how his teammates would respond to him and how the media would respond to him. I mean, Michael K. yesterday, um, I thought, did a great job breaking down Alex Rodriguez coming into this year. That. When John Sterling's apartment complex burned down, the only Yankee to give him a call and actually offer him his apartment to stay was Alex Rodriguez. When Michael Kay's mother passed away, the only Yankee player that sent flowers was Alex Rodriguez. So there's this angel, there's this calculated angel side to Alex Rodriguez, but we also know there's a very calculated devil side to Alex Rodriguez. And if you have the angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, he doesn't necessarily choose to always listen to the angel side because the other one outweighs all the positives that he does. And I'm not sure how genuine some of the things that he does, even those kind of those kind of efforts, you well, we didn't hear that. about it. You didn't hear about them, and, and Michael K, obviously, John, I think John Sterling told Bob Raceman about it, and then obviously Michael K reiterated on his show yesterday. I mean, A-Rod wasn't the one to to kind of go out and say right. hey, I did these things. I well, can't get on his case for something that he didn't he didn't spread unless he asked John to spread it, which I but don't think he did. But just the idea that. that he was suing the the players association um you know when when their leader was dying of brain cancer. Uh, he was suing the Yankee doctor Ed again doesn't. over things that over things that he has now admitted were lies. And you know so he was going he went all the way to one side and took a hardline stance. When when he was actually, you know, interviewed by the FBI and federal investigators, he came clean and said, "Yeah, all everything I was saying was true." But I'm oh, going to other people's credit. Involved. But Mike, I'm going to put difference. other people's. Listen, you want to go on Mike Frances's radio show and say that? That's I'm I'm okay with that. Even though you're lying to the public and your fans, okay. But you dragged other people's names in the mud, trying to hold up a facade that was built on the shakiest of foundations. And to me, that makes him a very unlikable character, although I think the storyline can be very entertaining. Yeah, I, I, could, I could agree with that. I, I certainly think that. Um, and and when, you, when you think about it, though, um, A-Rod, to me, will be the story of the Yankees, but I think you hit the nail on the head in your question. There's so many ifs here on the Yankees. And I know David Cohn was on uh, the, the fan yesterday and talked about he thinks McCann and, and Beltron will make it back and give you some historical seasons. So th- there's, there's a resume there. See, the one thing you can say about the Yankees is that there's a resume of success where those guys have done it. Age is the issue, and health. And those are always big ifs, and those are always risky propositions. Whereas with the Mets, there's not the resume, of uh, at least in, in the best case, one year with the exception of Grandison and David Wright, who have career resumes where I, I, you almost want to say as much as I agreed with Kevin, where maybe the Yankees have all these question marks. If you were betting, you bet on the health and the age and the resume, which is a risky combination. Do you bet on the guy that hasn't done it, but is working towards achieving it? And I think most people will bet on the Yankees for the sense that they're at least is a, a, a resume of success. I think that's, That's ultimately a point of view, which maybe you take a different one than me. But I have to agree with that individual who says, you know what, I know the Mets and the potential, but potential is abstract. But the Yankees is is analytical. Resumes are analytical. They're they're there. You know that. You know, for the Yankees offensively, that perspective of their lineup, that is the argument that you're looking at the back of their baseball cards, and we'll talk about baseball cards a little bit in the next hour, tops baseball cards. But from a pitching perspective, they're much more similar to the Mets because you are looking at, hey, can Michael Pineda do what he did at the start of last year and stay healthy? He doesn't have a huge track record of success. You look at Tanaka and his health, and obviously he had one tremendous year in the major leagues, but not a sustained record of success. Although you know what he's done in Japan has to be taken into consideration. And then you look at Dylan Potanzis as your new closer, and that's only one year of success. So when you look at a pitching standpoint for the Yankees, there's a lot of question marks that are similar to the Mets question marks of whether these guys could either take another step forward or continue along a very, very good trend of continuing to get better and better and uh, maintain the kind of success they had in 2014. The Yankees starting rotation right now, you're at the point where if you're watching Major League Baseball Network or watching watching sports and they show that projected rotation, you realize the Yankee rotation, projected five starters, includes Chris Capulano. Right. And it includes a bunch no. of other guys coming off injuries. Yeah. Scott so we Baker could talk about their, in and everything. Yeah. Yeah. We could talk about their offense. Oof. That, yeah. that pitching no, staff can be really good, or that could be really bad in a hurry. Right. And that's why I have all this talk about James Shields, and I want to give credit to Evan Roberts because he's been adamant about this this week. Um, yes, I did listen to WFAN a little bit while in Mexico City, about yeah. even though James Shields might be another big-time contract that the Yankees have to give in big-time years, what he has given you consistently and what this team may need more so than anything in a starting rotation is innings. And he's a two hundred well, plus guy every year. Joe, one thing, and I, I want to get to the phone lines, but one thing is that you may be able to get James Shield on a one-year deal where he says, all right, you know that that big deal's not here. I could sign a two or three deal, a fraction of what I thought I was going to get, or let me sign a one-year deal, go out and prove myself somehow, get myself back out on the market again. That's something that if the Yankees are are smart. And, and, and like you said, I can't disagree with that. Uh, Cashman said it yesterday on on the fan. It's not about rebuilding. Hal does not want to rebuild. They're, they, they're not allowed to. They're not allowed to do what the Red Sox have done, which is win a World Series, trash it, try to win again. Um, although I think they should, it's just not in the DNA, and it's not what the Steinbrenner family wants. So anyway, let's go to the phone lines. If you want to give us a call, the number is 646-716-8187. It's Drew from Bayshore. It's been a couple of weeks. Drew, how you doing, Mike and Joe? Good What's morning. going on?
5: Morning. Good morning, guys. Running a little late. I tried to call on earlier, and then uh, – Listen to the Kevin Kernan uh, interview. It said, uh, In a, in a uh, sad way, we're talking about baseball because, you know, the Knicks and the Rangers and, and hockey in general is irrelevant. But, uh,
1: Listen, no, uh, that's uh, not true,
5: Drew. Yeah,
3: I mean, the Rangers
1: <laughs> were a point behind the Islanders who are having a dream season who have a new super fan in Joe.
3: The Rangers were right. <laughs> a point
1: behind. The Rangers I mean, uh, guy, Joe could have came back from Mexico City third place behind Pittsburgh and the Rangers. He was a hair away from that
5: happening. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I'll continue with the baseball talk anyway. You know, and I, I was talking to a friend about the Mets, and, you know, I agree. They might not have as many question marks, but, I mean, they don't have that solid history of things working out like everybody plans in the beginning. And, you know, one thing as a fan that, you know, I, I want to stop, stop saying is, all these mental errors that, that they make, the base running mistakes, the poor plate approach, the, the, you know, and, and the errors that, you, you as a Mets fan, that you're sick and tired of seeing season in, season out, regardless if it's a young team or, or a more veteran team, it just seems that you're always seeing the same mistakes here year and you're year out, and I would like to see an end of that. And, you know, additionally, uh, he, he, Kevin talked about, you know, um, you know, the Robinson Canell I, I think he's a little off base with that. I mean, 250 million dollars for 10 years for a guy that's 30. I mean, you talk about paying on the back end of that. I mean, those last five years could be a disaster, um, potentially to to the Mariners now and or whoever team signed that. I mean, I, and, and you know his other point about you know not looking at the numbers as much as these other people and, you know, being on the, on, on the grassroots of things. And yeah, that's, that's nice. But uh, the problem is, is that though I feel like lately or like recent history has shown that, you know, if you're really looking at the numbers, uh, it, it's really more beneficial than you know, possibly the, the older approach where, you know, you just look at a guy and you know, you know, I, I don't know what you guys thought about that. It was, those were just like two points that stuck out for me. And, uh, I'd just like to know what you guys think about that.
1: That is actually a very interesting comment. But, Joe, I, I will address that because Drew must have been reading my mind. That was a segue about a comment that uh, Kevin made about the shift. I do want to address the Mets. Um, let's take a quick break. When we return, uh, we'll still talk a little bit of baseball. I do want to get into – we have a pretty cool promotion in the 11 o'clock hour with Tops. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, maybe a little NBA – Joe and I are going to try to figure out how to get through the month of February, which is the worst sports month. But we will address what Drew just brought up uh, and a bunch of other things right after this. It's the weekend.
0: It's the weekend watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Every Saturday between 10 and noon, Mike Silva and Joe Bono bring you the weekend sports with a New York slant. A one-stop shop of quality commentary, hard-hitting debates, intelligent guests, and entertaining pop culture references. Go to weekendwatchdogs.com for an archive of the latest shows. iTunes subscription and to contact the show. It's Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Sova and Joe Bono. Don't miss it. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Sova and Joe Bono.
1: All right, Mike silver Joe Bono. We can watch the Trying to get our production back on track. See, this is what happens. Joe and I try to help out and get involved in things that you should be doing. I try to assist, like <laughs> almost, almost like Cliff Paul. I'll be Mike Paul, and then I screw up the production on the last segment. So, anyway, that was my fault. I'll take the E5. Joe, you take it from here on production. But Drew made a good point, and, and, and I've never thought of this, but I've been, we talked about it last week. We talked about the shift and the rules change I watch Manfred's comments with uh, ESPN outside the lines. But the real key is things are cyclical and we have a, an overabundance of technology. And it is true. If you want to position your defense for every hitter, there is data out there that I think you could probably position players around the field where it becomes increasingly difficult for a player to hit it to his strength, whatever that may be. Now you talk about players adjusting. Kevin brought up Robinson Canel. And I think – When he first said how Cano hit less home runs and he adjusted because everybody was throwing the shift against him, I didn't think of Robinson Cano having a special year last year. Now, he's out in Seattle. He's he's playing the West Coast. You know, 1 o'clock in the morning, those games end. So here on the East Coast, you and I are not really probably paying as much attention to him. But Cano hit 14 home runs. He had 82 RBIs. He had 314, which is the same batting average he had uh, the year before uh, with the Yankees. The big drop-off, even with the big drop-off in home runs um, and RBIs, he almost hit the same amount of doubles. He only had three less hits from his 2013 with the Yankees. And from a standpoint, if you put everything together, he wasn't all that off from the player he was with the Yankees. So you can take a drop back in some of the offensive categories, i.e. home runs, and still be an effective player. Cano showed a willingness to do that based on what Kernan told us in Seattle but I don't think a lot of players would be comfortable. A lot of players will look at, well, I only had 14 home runs and 82 RBIs, and teams might look at it and say, well, he's declining, when in reality, his numbers are pretty much the same. Now, they're down from a peak in 2012, the total bases and things, but he's still, a very, both ways, he's still, a Robinson Cano, he's still a really an elite second baseman, maybe the best in baseball or among the best in baseball. So that's how I took that. And it's interesting, I never thought of it that way until I looked well, at the numbers after Vernon brought it up. There's a, I think there's more to it than just, Robinson Cano was not going to allow the shift to beat him, and he was a good enough hitter to hit the ball the opposite field. He was also playing in Seattle half the season and not Yankee Stadium's right-field porch. So how many doubles did he hit to right field, right center field, or even left field opposite way that would have been home runs at Yankee Stadium and put his home run total somewhere in the mid-20s as opposed to 14? Um, He also played on some elite offensive Yankee teams, uh, Seattle, Uh, historically, at least in recent history, has been one of the poorest offensive teams in baseball, so you can't help to think that has something to do with his RBI numbers being down as well. I think what it comes down to is whether or not hitters are going to be stubborn enough and kind of just believe that as long as their approach to the plate is to hit the ball hard somewhere, that eventually the hits will come and the power numbers will be there. Are they willing to make a short-term adjustment to hit the ball the opposite way, to get teams to defend them in a more fair, more traditional sense to open up the field more. And guys are going to be very reluctant to change their approach during the course of a year, maybe up their strikeout numbers, uh, mentally kind of get them all out of whack, just to hope that people will start putting a third baseman where a third baseman is and keeping a shortstop where a shortstop is. Um that's the question. I mean, Cano was always a guy that could go to all fields. Last year wasn't just the case. Um, you want to say that he was taking what the pitchers were giving him more often? Well, part of that might be because he knows he can't hit it 310 feet and, and get a pop fly home run anymore. I mean, that might be part Isn't of rationale going into it as well. And you're right. You know, the Yankee Stadium short right field porch, anybody, Granderson, anybody who plays in Yankee Stadium is going to get a certain number of home runs added to their total that would be either – Outs or doubles somewhere else, but last year he hit nine home runs at Safeco, he had five away. Uh, his, ba- you know, pretty much from an offensive standpoint, he was the same home and away, slightly better at home, um, you know, than away. It's just interesting how the perception of reality is that, you know, it could be a number of things. You really have to dive into these numbers, but it wasn't even that. I mean, it wasn't even Safeco Field. I mean, I just think that there has to be. Some kind of moment for baseball, where baseball never adjusts. Other other leagues, the NFL, as the as the schemes change, coaches adjust. The NBA, coaches adjust. I mean, I know that we bring up bring up the neutral zone trap and so hockey. Why, are, hockey why are you asking? You're asking for the league to adjust, but you don't want the players to adjust. No, I'm asking the players to adjust. I'm not saying do do anything different. Well, those are different wise. arguments. Those are different arguments than a neutral zone infraction or a 24 second clock or. Well, that's the uh, debate. The know, debate league, is are we at that point. Uh, penalty leaves. We might be. At, it's okay to question if we're at that point, but I don't think we have enough of a sample in front of us after one year of offense being down to early 90s levels to say that's going to be the case. And can we, I mean, do we have to wait five years while the next breed of, of minor leaguers comes into play and gets taught to hit and use the whole field? Or can players do? what at least what the numbers are telling us Robinson Cano did last year. I'm going by what Curtis said. I didn't see enough of Cano to say that the guy is a different overall hitter from a standpoint of using the field than he was the Yankees. I didn't see enough of those games. I have to really dive into heat maps and, and spray charts and all that. But that's just the point. Like you know, Baseball is always stubborn. Well, let me do things the same way because it's always about consistency and players get into a comfort zone. Whereas the other leagues, teams have to adjust. If it's becoming a quarterback league, you have to adjust to be a quarterback league. If the shift yeah, in technology is things... making it difficult to hit, adjust. Hit the ball the other way. Or whatever it is. Right? Yeah, well, I think it's different circumstances. And a lot of a lot of scenarios, the uh the leagues making changes make things easier for the player, um, make things easier for the quarterback, make things easier for the wide receiver, for the defenders. It's I have zero choice. I could either Continue to play like I was playing and get called for a penalty each and every time, or I have to try to do a better job of doing things that way. Uh, to me, that's more of a similarity to what hitters are facing right now: is that I can continue to do things like I am and hitting balls that would be base hits in the hole, and though it said there will be four to threes on the scorecard, and I'll take another 0 for four, or try to hit the ball the other way. Again, though, I think that the overall thought process for any major league hitter is to hit the ball hard. Somewhere every single time. And if a guy is a traditional pull hitter, I think we are almost underestimating the difficulty it'll be for them to adjust because we're talking about them not looking to adjust. Are we looking for them to adjust permanently and become an all field hitter like Curtis Granderson's gonna be Daniel Murphy all of a sudden? Or are we saying that, hey, Curtis, why can't you just lay down a bunt here and there? Uh, hit the ball occasionally the other way for a I think, a- it's a I think it's so that would have been a short stuff. I think it's a ladder, But here's what will drive me nuts is they'll do a shift or a modified shift depending if there's a runner in scoring position. And if just once or twice you put some doubt into the defense where you're going to try to hit the ball the other way, um, it may change things. It at least keeps it honest. I think it was um, Doug Glanville wrote a piece a while back. I don't know if it was for the Times or ESPN talking about Derek Jeter and for him what made him a great hitter. Because Derek Jeter wasn't anything from a standpoint of home runs, RBIs. I mean, he was just consistent. But he said you can never really defend them as a center fielder because you just didn't know where the ten- tendencies were. Now, I'm not asking everybody to be Derek Jeter. That's unrealistic. But I'm asking, mix it up, put some uncertainty, and they may, you may keep the defense more honest. That's it. I don't know if it's in the DNA. Here's another point that probably is even bigger than just hitting the ball the other way. It's selective patience. You could be patient to a fault. Can you maybe not always wait for two strikes to get into a hitting position, especially if there's runners in scoring position? Everything is not template. And I think we're trying to, at least baseball, in my opinion, has tried with certain sabermetric principles, which I have nothing against, but it's not a one-size-fits-all. And I think especially you see with the Mets, where we're a patient team, we have to work the count. Well, that might not be the case against a pitcher who, by the way, probably is just going to pound strike. If you're facing Greg Maddox, Odds are he's not going to walk you even if you wait for him to walk you. So why not change that approach? That's my whole point. I don't think there's enough of that going on in the league. You watch baseball, Joe. You think that that's that's an unfair statement? I think you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach in baseball from a teaching standpoint, from an execution standpoint. You have to be able to adjust and be good enough um, to where take what the defense has given you, taking what the pitcher has given you. Um, If a guy's aggressive early in the count, be aggressive early in the count against him. If a guy, if a team is shifting you all the way each and every game and you want that to end, lay down a bunt, hit the ball the opposite field, force them to react and change their philosophy. I mean, listen, the the same way um, advanced metrics and scouting reports can work to a defense's and a pitcher's um, ability, the offense has, the hitter has the exact same kind of, key metrics when they're looking at how a pitcher is going to face them and how a defense is going to face them. So it shouldn't be a surprise that when you step into the plate that all of a sudden the third baseman's standing behind second base and the second baseman's in the outfield. You know going into the game that's going to be the case. But don't you always think baseball historically, the pitchers and the defense are always at an advantage? That's, again, an anecdotal statement, but it always seems no matter what, no matter how offensive the era, no matter what tools are at the hitter's disposal, they always seem to be the one that has to work harder. That's always been my perception, for whatever reason. Now, again, I'm just throwing that out there, and I think that's where this is all coming to play, where I think it's a lot easier to position a defense than to predict the movement on Matt Harvey's fastball and whether or not I should, you know, when I have that split tenth of a second, I should get ready to hit or take it when it's on the outside corner. That's all. I mean, that's, that's part of it. You know, the, the other thing, Joe, and I'm guilty of this, because it's so frustrating. And Kevin, I think, said it best, where as Mets fans, there was some anger this week when Sandy Alderson spoke to season ticket holders. Um, I guess it was like three or four days ago. Did you? I'm assuming you – I know you were away, but I don't know if you saw any recap of, of Sandy's yeah, comments uh, specifically. I listened, to, uh, I listened to Evan Roberts' recap. He's a season ticket holder, so he was at the event. I heard that. Right. And and uh, well, what was Evan's take? What what was Evan disappointed? What was because it, it'll 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 lay my, my point. I think better if I hear. I didn't hear Evan's points. What did Evan think about uh, Sandy at the, the season ticket event? Well, Evan didn't get a question. He said they didn't. Neither him or his father were called upon. Um, not it a shot. take a lot of questions from um, from season ticket holders. And I think Sandy's overall thought process was is that we're not going to make a trade um for something we don't want or don't need we're not going to take it, we're not going to make a trade for the sake of making a trade if we feel like it's not worth the player we're giving back. Um, so I think in, in those respects, I think he's talking a little bit a little bit about Dylan G. Um, the other thing that kind of came out is that when people were questioning about you know, the Cuban shortstop who can also play the outfield Moncada, he pretty much said the Mets would not be in on it and that he said that he felt that, when you look at whoever ends up with him, it'll probably be a team that is lacking a farm system. And I think he was talking a little bit about what the Mets have in terms of Ahmed Rosario coming up at a 19 year old shortstop and that, you know, the Mets have, and Kevin kind of mentioned it too. They just have, they have what I think baseball perspectives or baseball America ranked the fourth best farm system in baseball now, and that they don't need to reach and stretch and blow up their budget and pay all these taxes on this kind of market When it's going to be this high, because they've done a good job in scouting, um, both in the draft and at the younger levels of the international market. And I think that was the overall take that came away from it is that, listen, we've done a good job building up this this farm system that we don't have to jump at every single Cuban player. And the teams that are that do need to do that are teams that don't have a good farm system coming up through the ranks. Now, Jeff Payson was on earlier this week with Joe and Evan as well and talked about how he felt that was nonsense because he felt that, that the teams that are interested in him in a lot of respects do have good farm systems. But that was Sandy's slant on that, at least well, see, towards uh, That's uh, my issue with Sandy. That's my issue with Sandy. Not that Sandy's saying anything that's not wrong. I think the fans, and I think the average fan, and I'll call, and I mean this respectfully, the foam finger fan, the fan that's not diving into this thing and really trying to learn it as a business on all fronts, the fan that just wants to go and watch some baseball has had this delusion that and a lot of, and this is all the media's fault that everything was all of a sudden going to be okay. Now after 2014, that the Mets were going to be able to be do business as always financially. The Mets are who they are. Spending is not a, a, a part of the repertoire that they can use. It's like a pitcher. If a pitcher doesn't have a fastball anymore, let's not pretend that he can blow that hitter away. He's got to use other things. We could hope and we could wish. We could wish that uh, Doc Gooden was 85. Doc Gooden in 1990, but he wasn't. Um, You got to get over that, and I have to realize that as as well. But what annoys me about Sandy is that that is a a political answer when he, he could say that, but also acknowledge without being, you know. You know, arrogant or obtuse about it, just like, hey, we're just not in a position to to spend that kind of money. That's it, and I think people would feel, all right, I get it. But when he makes an answer like that, he still leaves that little doubt in the average fan that, well, okay, it's a business decision for the team on the field, it has nothing to do. They have money, they don't. So you could sit around. I mean, there's Mets fans who were tweeting, well, what, you know, is there a chance they could get in on James Shields or or get in on Scherzer when he was still available. Like, that shouldn't even be – even if it doesn't make sense for the on-field product because they don't need pitching per se, it's stupid to even have fans discuss that because you play with their emotions. And I think Sandy is a very condescending public speaker, and he annoys the absolute be- Jesus out of me because I want to use another word, but I can't on this show. Because and he's he doesn't annoy me at all. I think he does he a great and I and I did a great Spanning job. And and maybe, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm not a foam finger fan or the person you're related to because I don't know what other people have been watching the last four years. But then when he says something like, "I think we can win 89 games this year after the 90 game hysteria," because that came out that he said that on that an internal call me. or meeting. To me I, go, me, I go, I go, but I go, that's smart. That's funny, and take it as that. And I give him credit for having those jabs uh, to the media and to the fans. Uh, I think he's smart enough to come up with stuff like that. And even that like the line about the shortstop, I, I finally get to introduce a, a shortstop or present a shortstop when Cal Ripken Jr. Uh, presented the award at the baseball writers' dinner. The stuff that bothers you, I don't know why it bothers you. He's an employee of the Wilpons. You want him to come out publicly and say, my budget's my budget, I would love to spend the he, money, but we just don't have, have that. it? What do you want no. him to say? Teams have done that. I've seen teams when? say, hey, we're when not in that on our budget. When? I've, when? I've never heard that, it for years. Never seen that. Small market teams. Those words from their general manager. Does Billy Bean. That's the perception. That's the perception. Does Billy Bean ever say he could be in on a free agent? When does Billy Bean not tell you exactly who they are and what they could afford? He does it all the time. And the Mets are Billy Bean and the A's. That's who they are. Now they have a little bit more room, but not much. Billy Bean never lies to his fan base. Do you ever see Billy Bean say, I was like, yeah, we could we be in on Max sure. I don't think they're asking the same questions that the Mets fan base is asking. I don't think he's asking the same questions as the Mets beat writers are asking well, Billy there's, Bean. There's, o- a problem. There's I mean, a problem. it's been 15 years of, of Billy Bean doing this. So I think people got the drill. And I don't know why people, Mets fans, don't get the drill now either. If well, that, I that there, is a fair, I would point. not I agree with you 100%. Questions. I agree. I, know. I, I think maybe now they you get think, it. You think, like, like you think Billy Bean in, in Oakland, the offseason comes out, and they're having a season ticket him either, and they go, hey, Billy, Max Scherzer, he's looking for seven years, 200-plus million. You think you could fit him in this year? Of course not. They know what he's going to do. And Mets well, fans should understand what the Mets are going to do. do. That's a unique take in saying, hey, shame on the Mets fan for putting Sandy in a position where um, he has to be less than sincere maybe or couch, I, that's a wrong. Maybe that's where I'm going wrong. I shouldn't question the sincerity. I think Sandy answers things because of how he speaks and he couches it where there's still, if you're not really versed in his legalese, he always tells you the truth, Sandy. He never lies. That I'll give him. But he, you have to be intelligent enough. It's like a crossword puzzle. It's never up front. I don't think- I don't think you need to be that intelligent. <laughs> I really don't think you need... What do you, what, Why do you have well, to be so smart to realize you're they're giving not going to be man a hundred million though. dollar Cuban so shortstop? Joe, a lot of fans are not... I mean, I'm, I'm saying this, I, and I believe this. A lot of fans are just not as savvy and educated as you See, I, media I disagree. Per- I disagree. I think when the fans are talking that way, they're still angry at ownerships and ownership's ability, but... Fred Wilpon and Jeff Wilpon don't have to stand and answer questions. Fred Wilpon and Jeff Wilpon don't have to meet with the media or call into talk shows and break down the team right. for 25 minutes. So Sandy is the guy that has to answer the questions. I think the fans want to be vocalized somehow, and they're they're still upset and frustrated that they're not playing as a big market team. And Sandy's got to be the guy that has to feel those questions when deep down they know Sandy can't do it either. So I don't think it's a matter of intelligence that the fan base doesn't understand it. It's their way of venting the frustration that the men are in this situation and that they're this close. They're $50 million worth of payroll away from being a sure thing playoff team this year, and they're not there because of ownership. Yeah, and, and I think that's the point. Like people argue with me and say, well, what did you want them to do? Did you want them just to spend money just for the sake of it? That's not what I'm saying. It's Again, if I have a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, that doesn't mean I use it every pitch of an entire game or every time I need a big strikeout, but it's there, and the Mets, it's not there, and that's the frustrating part because there's no reason in this current economic climate, although I believe that the whole cable licensing fees and all that stuff is going to burst, and it's going to burst soon. And God help baseball, if they go a la carte the cable industry, that that's over. Because there's gonna be a lot of people who say, I'm not paying for this. I don't wanna I don't watch this enough to pay for it. Um, but it's still not there. And that's I guess the frustrating part. So I I, I guess when me. I was when I look at mm-hmm. when I look at promises that are being made or when he keeps the door a little open, I don't think it's ever about the current budget. I think because it's always within a little bit. I mean, I think when I, when I hear him talk, it's always about, yeah, there's some flexibility. Listen, some flexibility does not mean you're bringing in a $15 to $20 million play, player. I think people should understand that lingo. I think the, where he's kind of leaving the door open for hope-wise, again, gets into this issue of if the team can be successful, if people return to the ballpark, if they're a season ticket holders, then all of a sudden they will be a, in a position to become a big market team again. And I think that's where the door is still open. Where hey, we hope to be in that position with the international market in a in the future. We hope that down the road we'll be a player for these type of guys. That's the only kind of hope that I feel like he dangles, the only carrot that he kind of holds for the Mets fan. You know, we are lucky in one sense, Joe, because if we were in any other, if this was the weekend watchdog, the Charlotte version or the Wisconsin version, you know, February blues after the Super Bowl is a big deal. But think, you know, here we are. We're, we're arguing about Sandy, Sandy Alderson's comments to season ticket holders. Uh, we had a Rod discussion. We're talking about the ship. But Kernan brought it up. You got Matt Harvey, who's pretty much from a tabloid point of view, the Mets version of a Rod. We may be able to survive the February blues without even mentioning a couple of uh, you know topics that have been talked about on national shows this week. Uh, well, one has been talked about, the NBA playoff format. I listened to listen to Frank Isola, my buddy, chat a little bit about it on NBA radio, on Sirius. And here's the thing, Joe. with all, Forget the fact that Lundqvist is out. And I'm thinking about this as we're here chatting about Sandy Wilson's comments to season ticket holders. Can the Rangers and the Islanders, with how well both teams have been playing, especially the Islanders who haven't done this in a while, if they can't move ahead of the pecking order in the next 30 days to 60 days, you know, Will they ever? Because if they're going to move to the front of the pecking order for a little bit, maybe that'll happen in the playoffs if they play a series. But you would think that they'd be able to inch up, and it seems like from a news point of view, at least early, post-Super Bowl, that's not happening. Because here we are, you and I are as guilty as as anyone else. Here we are, we're talking about Sandy Alderson's comments to season ticket holders. It's just interesting, ironic. And as a hockey fan, I think it would be interesting to see what your thoughts on that. Because you are, I've seen your Twitter feed, and I don't blame you, I'm not criticizing you. You know, for you, the Islanders are far bigger concern right now than what Sandy Alderson's saying to the season ticket holders, but I think you're in the minority of, of situations. At least that's the Oh, well, I'm in the minority because hockey fans are in the minority, so I think when you look at kind of national attention, attention or at least local attention, certainly playoff-wise, uh, a playoff run or a playoff series between the two teams will generate and garner back page type of attention. Without question. I mean, look no further than what the Rangers were able to do throughout May and June. And the attention they generated and, you know, thousands of people in Bryant Park watching a viewing party and what that did uh, in the middle of a baseball season. Maybe an underwhelming baseball season, but a baseball season nonetheless. So I think, listen, the time will come for hockey. Now, listen, I don't know whether or not it'll make down the road um, any any ground when it comes to the national or local landscape, because at the end of the day, they were just, this is still a baseball and football town and the people that call into local radio and the people that spend their dollar, you know, just a buck for the New York post are baseball and football fans priority. So, you know, as, as Al Dukes, Boomer and Carton's producer puts it, you got to play the hits and, you know, there might be a lot of indie, there might be a lot of indie bands out there and a lot of bands that, you know, can sell out like a 5,000-seat venue that you love and all their fans show up to that concert and it feels like a sellout crowd and you walk out going, that was the best concert I've seen in such a long time. They can't sell out Madison Square Garden and they can't sell out MetLife Stadium, but baseball and football always can. And that's why they'll always be number one and number two in this town. Now, Joe, we have a, a baseball card segment coming up after the break and I wanna tease this because I think it's important. Our our guest who's gonna talk a little bit about the uh the new tops baseball card release, which I haven't thought about baseball cards in a long time. So this kind of brought back some memories as I was looking at the cards and, and reading the release and we'll get to that. But there's a connection there that apparently a young, up and coming media member Joe Bono has a connection with our next <laughs> guest. Can you at least tease because the the proper tease to this segment before we go to break is let the listeners know how you have a connection to our next guest. Because I, I was blown away by the six degrees of separation when we were conversing over email and setting the, the piece up. Well, it's not six degrees. This is a first-degree connection. This is a first-degree, um, yeah. You know, if I was on LinkedIn, this would be a first-line first, uh, con- first <laughs> connection. Uh, my first job out of college, um, days after I graduated, was working um, in the broadcast communications part of the New Haven County Cutters, which was a new team in the Can-Am League, Canadian American League, that played at Yale Independent 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 Baseball Baseball League. Yeah. Yeah. So Ryan Smith was the guy who hired me. He was the number one play-by-play guy. I would do three innings and be in the booth with him, also do pre and post during home games. And then I wouldn't travel with the team, and I would do pre and post uh, for the road games that were on uh, a local radio station out there. And uh, I lived in like a little co- cottage in West Haven. And my first real bachelor's pad, uh, which had a little white picket fence, was painted pink on the outside and was decorated by the woman that lived in the house uh, that we were renting it from. And it had uh, dolls and rocking chairs. So that was my first at 22 years old, my first bachelor pad. pad. But our guest, she kind of ran the ground screw and the facilities for this. And what happens in minor league baseball is if there's going to be a rain delay, or rain happens in them. Say it's a seven o'clock game and it starts raining at three o'clock. Everyone that's working on the staff is responsible to try to pull the tarp, put the tarp on. And I would dread, you know, for the broadcast, the way I was taught. And you would put a tarp on? You would put the tarp on Listen, Mike, I would have my like, dress You don't even shovel on, snow. Back. now you're You don't even shovel snow now. Now you're putting tarp on. I can't get you to go <laughs> and it. get a regular cup of coffee outside of Starbucks and now you're putting tarp on so, so Listen, again, I come to work and listen there's the different types of philosophy. Most people in minor league baseball are wearing like a, a team polo and like shorts and sneakers. But where I came from from Fordham was if you're the broadcaster, you're wearing a collared shirt, you know long sleeve or short sleeve shirt you're wearing slacks and dress shoes and looking like you're going out that night so i would show up and then they'd be like ground crew time i'd go out there and the shoes all of a sudden muddy rainy i got calluses on my hands i was not cut out for this but our our guest was but i i did not answer those situations well all right all right let's take a quick break it's uh, our guest will be uh leanne and i hope i said her last name correctly and if i if I, i i i haven't i apologize uh, Minotoli, uh She is the marketing manager over at the Tops Company. We're going to talk a little bit about this launch of a Series 1 MLB set, some very unique cards in the set. Um, almost in a way, I, it, some of the, the things uh, other than the fact that when I was a kid, we didn't have all these special cards and everything, brings you back to kind of the roots, of, at least in my opinion, of what Tops was when I was growing up. So, anyway Joe, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get a little bit of a uh, baseball card talk with uh, Leanne Minnetoli right after this. Sandy also better stop lawyering people because I'm tired of the responses. You know what? He, you know what? Either you demand excellence or you don't. Oh, we, you know, I said we were 90 wins as a goal, but you know what? It was really just something to strive for. You know what, Sandy? I'm not on trial here. Okay? Stop. This team is dead and you are taking a good opportunity with some good young pitching and you're pissing it away. Have hope. You know, it's like 1984. Oh, really? Stop with the amazing and believe, and you know what, you want to live in the amazing and believe world, that's fine, you're going to sit with you and the 5,000 other desperados and we'll i behind Collins, Ooh, which let me tell you something, if Terry Collins inspire you, even at the post-game conference yesterday, you sounded like an idiot, they could not have picked a worse candidate out of all the people they interviewed back in 2010. You could not, I could have asked my dog to go and drop his ball in a bucket, in this four bucket, pick a bucket, and that guy's the manager of the mess. My dog would have probably picked a better manager than Sandy Alderson.
0: It's the weekend watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono.
1: All right. We can watch. So Joe does love. I actually, every time I listen to that PSA, the very creative Joe Bono, I laugh. I just get a kick out of it because that was all Joe. And I mean this sincerely when I, I was so angry that morning. None of that was scripted. I was angry and I was going to talk about it, but I promised the listeners, I promise you, none of that was preconceived. That was pure. I was just, I'll use the word pissed off that morning. I'm not as pissed off today, but I was pissed off that morning. So. Work there, Joe. We have to do. You haven't done one in a while. You have to do another one. Maybe, maybe our, maybe, maybe uh, this baseball card segment will bring out our next PSA. So, anyway, um, joining us uh, is the marketing manager from the Tops Company, and uh, Leanne. I hope I say your last name right. It's Leanne uh, Minatoli. Uh, Leanne, you're all Mike and Joe. How you doing? Good. How are you guys? Can't complain. So, talk a little <laughs> bit about uh, this new Top set. You know, oh, first, Leanne, let me back up. Do you have any stories of Joe trying to put the tarp on a field? Cause I'm trying to picture that because I, that I when bad. I heard you guys work together, I didn't know he was actually doing physical labor.
2: Cause this is a guy that, you know, he doesn't even want to shovel snow. Now he's putting tarp on a field in a minor league baseball game. Well, everyone puts tarp on. There's really no, um, there's no decision. If, if the ground screw says the tarp's going on, everybody gets pulled out of the office and puts the tarp on. So there's really no choice in the matter. So if, uh, that is kind of how you put a tarp on, It's just everybody, um, you pull people out of the office, you pull them out of the broadcast booth, you pull them out of wherever, and uh, the concession stands, and everybody puts the tarp on.
1: And it's not a short process. Like you got to go back, and then it kind of inflates, right? Like it bubbles yeah. up, and then you got to walk back over it, and I'm just getting dirtier and dirtier, and no one else is bothered by this, but me, I'm like, ah. So what I think I started to do as the season kind of went on, if there were kind of incriminating clouds or threatening clouds in the area, I might go on a on a lunch run or a coffee run for everyone, you know, try to oh, I'll come back. Oh, the tarp's on. Oh, I'm sorry. I Always added value, Joe. I got to give you that. But all, but in all seriousness, Leanne, you guys uh, had an event this week. I've seen the pictures of the cards, especially, uh, we you know, we talk of Mets, we're talking Yankees, so we, we took a look at some of the Mets ones. Grew up, Tops was really the only set I – collected i mean this sincerely back in the 80s early 90s when i was still you know before high school in high school and uh it seems like you have some new things and some things that really bring you back to your roots of what you guys did as a as a baseball card company so why don't you give a listeners an idea of what's going on with uh, Topps baseball
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, When you say that you collected Topps Baseball back in the 80s and 90s, this set that we just put out, um, it's treated on Wednesday, was the set that you would have collected. So it is um, our Series 1, um, Topps Baseball Series 1 set. It's actually the largest that we've done in about a decade. So there's 350 cards um, to collect for Series 1. Series 2 will come out... um, in July, there'll be another 350, which makes a 700-card complete set. The past 9, 10 years, it's been 660 cards. So we're looking at a much larger set. Um, also, having the mix of the classic base cards, you know, so you can build your set. But also, there's a lot of um, pop culture mixed into this set. There's some history mixed into the set. And as a company... We like to um, keep it interesting and fun, and you know, there's lots of different inserts to chase. So if you're not looking to build a 700 card set, but say you're looking to um, acquire all of the celebrity first pitch cards, that's something you can do. So there's lots of different ways to collect this set. Um, if you're not looking for the full 350, um, lots of different inserts and fun things to uh, to collect. Now this is just a kind of a curious question I have but how much insight
1: at all do the players have in the selection process of their photos? So Adam Rubin, um, who covers the Mets for ESPN York was posting a lot of the pictures of the top series throughout the day, a couple of days ago with the various photos and poses. What's the selection process for determining what pictures get used for which players?
2: So we, there's a, there's a position um it's called our it's our editor position at tops, and that is their one of their main jobs um it's one of their main functions, so we have a couple of baseball editors and then of course we have football editors u f c um and they spend an enormous amount of time selecting images so that an image like the Derek Jeter card, which is card number one in this set just completely epitomizes him as a player and it's just it's not the easiest process mostly because of how many images are out there if you think of you know all of even if you're only looking for a home a home uniform so think of all the home games and how many shots are taken during that game they're sifting through quite a bit and so to find that that stellar image it is a it's a full-time job um, players, some players, mostly rookies, um, sometimes get a little bit more um, say into their cards simply because we have a little bit more interaction with them. But typically, it's our it's our the editor role that just as a full time job, they're looking to pick the the best of the best images.
1: And the funny thing is, Joe, and I'm sure Leanne could could relate to this, is that you got to cut it off. Even though if you have a 700 card set, players, even if they're contributors, you have to cut it off. So I'm a little friendly with Tim Burdack, who's retired now, and I remember a couple of years ago. I was with him, and he's like, you know, I'm looking for a baseball card of himself with the Mets. And at that time, it just wasn't there. And he was a little bummed out because he had Astros one, and someone had asked about, um, you know, his card. So, I mean, it's, it must be tough for you guys because you want to get everyone involved, but you got to cut it off at some point. And I'm sure you get calls from players. I'm wondering if you get calls from some players, especially the younger ones, say, hey, when am I going to get my shot or something along those lines?
2: We do. Well, the good news about expanding the set is that now so there's another 60 players. So between series one and series two, we'll end up getting about 700 major league players into the set, which goes pretty deep because then we have also um, coming out in October our update series. And what that is, is a lot of the September call ups. We'll end up getting their first card in that update series. We do a whole all-star set in that update series, so we really do try, at least for current players, to get as many in there as we can, especially um, in new uniforms. So it's in updates, it's you know we we kind of go to press right after the um, the trade deadline. So we can, we can get those traded players in their new uniforms into the set. It's just something that, you know, to have the first card of a newly traded player in your hands during or right after the season is kind of something special for collectors. So um, at least with the three series, the base brand of Topps Baseball, we're able to kind of capture, you know, 700 plus players.
1: We're talking about the Topps baseball set officially launches uh, with the baseball season with Series 1. A reminder for Yankee fans, the last Derek Jeter card, also a special card for the late Ernie Banks. And then uh, these pop culture cards. So you have these first pitch cards um, with, I guess, kind of maybe celebrity ambassadors or celebrity fans of some of the teams. Lamore, Jeff Bridges, uh, Eddie Vedder with the Chicago Cubs. And you said several other surprises. Could you tell us who kind of other surprises that include the local Met and Yankee teams or, or people are gonna have to buy the set to try to find that figure it out?
2: No, I'm, I'm trying to think. You did you mention fifty cent? No, we did uh, not mention. okay. So oh, there there it pitch. is.
1: So that first pitch that was vined, was you know, gifted, put all through social media, that is kind of put as, as a top baseball card. People could look for that
2: one that is. So it's in the insert set of the celebrity. So like you said, um Lamore, he threw a first pitch out for the Seattle Mariners. Um Biz for a little throwback fun. Um he <laughs> was I believe hey, he threw out one, one for sprint. the for the Oakland A's. Um some some more kind of current um pop culture is the Boston Marathon winner. Um Meb. he uh, threw out a pitch for the Boston Red Sox. He is in there as well. Like you said, Eddie Vetter with the Cubs, um, Rage Against the Machine, their drummer. He, I'm going to miss the team. I don't remember what team he threw out a first pitch for, but, um, it kind of spans Michaela Maroney, the, um, the gymnast. gymnast. Yep. She also has a card in there. So it spans, I mean, everything from Rage Against the Machine to the U S women's national gymnast team. So, no. um, Lots of different people in there. It's a really fun set, uh, or really fun insert, I guess I should say, to collect. It's been getting a lot of buzz. Um, Graham Elliott, he's a chef in Chicago. Uh, He was all over Instagram just absolutely loving his card. So really great to hear when we get a good reaction from those that we feature on the cards.
1: And, And here's one. I'm about to make you a lot of money. If you could go back to first pitches in history, and I was at this game, Joe, if you could get the Baba Booey Gary Delabate card Ooh, from his historic first one. pitch back in 2009, Leanne, I don't even ask for the naming rights of that because I'm sure you sell a <laughs> ton. But I just, I you know, you might make your your uh, your quarterly sales on that one. So there's something for you to to think about. But in all, in all seriousness, uh, uh, one last thing uh, before I want to g- have you uh, you know give another uh, bit of information about this is you know we all think at least you know I'm in my late 30s so. Technology wasn't like it is today when I was growing up, so it was the baseball cards. But with technology, obviously, things like collecting baseball cards is is something that may not be as uh, attractive to some young people. But Tops is actually addressing that, I noticed, uh, reading a little bit about the company. Uh, Why don't you give those listening, especially if they're parents who are trying to get their kids into this, just like they were when they were younger, what Tops does from a digital standpoint?
2: From a digital standpoint, we do have our Bunt app. So if you go on to, uh, you can download it as any app um, right off of um, iTunes or the App Store, sorry. Um, So we do have Bunt. Um, There's also, if you're into soccer, we have the Kick app, as well as Huddle is our football app. So Bunt, it is digital trading cards, and you're playing a digital game. And if that's kind of where you want to break into um, collecting again, then it's a really fun, really um, entertaining and Almost addictive way to uh, to get back into it, and then the good thing is is that we're right in kind of the prime spot where those who are in their late thirties, early forties, and were collecting when it is when it was just the absolute um, thing to do, they now have children, and so it's something that we can say to parents, get your kids involved, and it's also something that if you're looking for something that is unplugged. Um, it's a great way to introduce your kids to something that's n- maybe not on the iPad if you want to start collecting physical cards. So we do have the digital side with our Bunt app, and then we also are really encouraging parents to get their kids back involved in collecting um, because we're we're a great food, candy-free reward. Um, there isn't gum in the packs anymore. So um, we're totally sugar-free and, uh, and unplugged, and it's just a really fun way to get um, parents and kids involved in something, that is a really low entry point. We're looking at $0.99, cents, $1.99 a pack, and we're easy to find. We're in your local Target. We're in Walmart, along with your local hobby stores. Um, so it's just something fun, either digitally or in a traditional sense of collecting cards. You mentioned it a little bit just there at the end. The
1: the chewing gum, I'm getting that's probably the most frequently asked question to Tops as a whole as to people reminiscing about their childhood and this hard stick of gum that maybe didn't taste very good, but there was a smell and aroma to it that kind of takes people back. And is the general idea of just not trying to include sugar gum in a baseball card or is it that it stains the card? What, what are some of the general responses
2: from Tops when people inquire about, hey, why isn't there any more uh, chewing gum in the packs? So it's, it's a very unfun answer. Um, <laughs> the, it's very, I wish there was some like lovely, glorious story, but the FDA actually requires it to be wrapped separately. And then we have to, it's like certified as a food product. So it, we, you can't just stick it in a pack of gum anymore. Oh, wow. I mean, a pack of cards. So like yeah. I said, very unfun. Um, but what we will do in certain sets, especially like our, our heritage or our throwback sets, like archives is we will, um, we'll scent the packs. So that they'll be a bubblegum scent. And we'll also artificially create gum stained backs so that you can still relive that. If you're really looking for the throwback in the history, you can relive that in some of our sets. So um, yeah, our heritage set and our archive set, those are really our kind of look back sets. Um they're in in um throwback designs, so old designs, and um and we will do some fun gum stained. Uh, backs, or, you know, you'll have the smell of the gum in there, but we're not actually able to put the gum in there anymore.
1: Well, that's interesting. That is an unfunny That is That makes a lot of sense. Well, in preparation for this, I read an article written by uh, Jeff Capel on ESPN.com regarding I don't understand why they don't do it, and there's really no wiggle room around there that answer, so there you go. There you go. So Leanne, uh, before we let you go, so give uh, the listeners any information where they could find this, you know, dates, you know, and everything that that they could uh, they could digest regarding the tops uh, 2015 launch of these
2: sets. Absolutely. So um, series one, it came out on Wednesday, February fourth. So at this point, it should definitely be in all your local stores. So like I said, Target, Walmart, Toys R Us. Um, and then also your local hobby store. If you have any trouble finding your local hobby store, you can go to tops.com We have a store locator there just to point you in the right direction. Um, but the sets are out there. Um, collect them by pack, collect them by box, and start building your uh, 2015 set. And uh, you can always um, go to tops.com for a little bit more information on the set and some of the inserts. And um, we just hope that everyone has a lot of fun with the set. It's been really well received both by the collecting community and then some of the kind of outside pop culture um, communities as well. So we're super excited about it. So glad that it's finally out there. It is the absolute official launch to the baseball, the baseball season with pitchers and catchers reporting you know, in a week or two. Um, it's really how we kick off our year, and we're just so glad that the time has finally come and it's out there in stores.
1: And Leanne, a, a, all we're doing the segment, a, a listener photoshopped uh, Joe putting the tarp on the field. You don't have any pictures of Joe no, putting the tarp on the field. No and you, I was too
2: busy leading everyone to take yeah. pictures. I was too busy yelling at everyone to hurry up and pull the tarp um, to go. make sure the field didn't get wet to take pictures. So. Hey, you've been, when she says been yelling generous? when
1: she says when she says yelling at everyone. It probably was probably was me slapping you know <laughs> trying to. Like I don't know why I was so consumed with trying to like get my hands clean like between poles, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> ridiculous. Unbelievable. Leanne, you've been very generous of your time. Good, good stuff. Uh, really enjoyed talking about it and going down memory lane. And uh, let's catch up again. And if you have any other Joe Bono stories, feel free to call in any time. It doesn't even have to be uh, planned. All right?
2: Will <laughs> do. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, uh,
1: Leanne Minatoli, the market manager for the Topps Company, which, by the way, Joe, um, they also still... I should have asked her this. I'm reading about some of the, the sets they do. They still do Garbage Pail Kids? Did you collect Garbage Pail Kids when you were a kid? Or that was beneath Joe Bono when you... Because I did. No, I, I didn't collect them. I had them. And I remember there was a movie. And I had, like, the movie on VHS. And I think it was, like, in my... Um, oh, I don't know if I'd be in the ...routine movie. of watching the movie. Um, I don't know. But I'll tell you one little thing about Tops, and I'll, I'll tweet it out now. That my wedding, saved the date, is a recreation of the uh, 1987 Tufts cards. The Wood Sides? The wood yep, sides. I'll tweet it out, I'll tweet it Very out right cool. now. Um, so It'll say, it uh, add jbono 611 and I'll retweet it at Mike it's a. I. It's a photo of my wife and I. Uh, we were actually at Fenway Park. You know the Omir Santos home run of Papel yes. Bond game? Mm-hmm. So we, were, we, yeah. were, we were there. We got standing room only tickets, which at Fenway Park are great. Uh, they're right behind the plate. And yep. uh, we took a picture, and we're both wearing David Wright jersey. So the idea was uh, Mister and Mrs. Wright. That is that, that is Dave. a very uh, that was a fun game for you to go to. I've been to, when I went to Fenway Park, I went for Pedro's return in 2006, and the Mets got blown out. So you had a better Fenway Park experience than I did. Uh, but I know we got the Mojo Minute. Uh, let's go to the phone line real quick. I think this is our buddy Elwood who uh, who did the photoshopping of Joe doing the tarp. Elwood, you're on with uh, Mike and Joe. How you doing?
6: Hey, forget what I called about. I saw the Garbage pill Kids at the dollar store yesterday in line. So, yes, they are back. Cause I saw they're them, I back. I <laughs> Same guys, ones, Elwood, back. or
1: are they recreated? Are they like the original no, ones? Or they're, what, they're, what is they're
6: they're it? Like, well, I only saw the outside of the package. I didn't buy them, of course. But I was like, Garbage yeah, Coal Kids did. back. You bought them, Elwood. Them. Don't lie to me. No, no. They, there's no way there would ever be an Elwood one in it. So I didn't. Um, No, I don't know. They're back. Hey, what I called about was you guys were talking about the baseball cards. I never thought of this. I was getting my nephew off to school because my sister had to go into work early, and he had his baseball cards, and I was like, hey, you know, you can get all that online, and he said, yeah, like my mom would let me take my iPad on the bus or the school would let us use it. He said, we got baseball cards because we can look at them on the bus and trade them and do whatever we want with them. And I got this magazine because I can read it whenever I want and borrow it and loan it. He said, you think my mom's going to let me do all this on an iPad or take it anywhere? And I thought, I never thought about the portability of baseball cards and magazines. That may be... Their big salvation. Well,
1: there was a fair to that part of it, and then the trading of baseball cards as a, as a kid was, was a big deal. Is that hey I need that one or that's my favorite player yeah. and my buddy has one and get actually right. traded physically and that was always a lot of fun. And I think when trading cards really started to kind of ramp up in the mid '90s, you know you had people who went back and thought oh my god we used to put these in our in our wheel spokes for our for our in our bicycles and we used to flip them you know, to see where they would land and play play games like that. And all of a sudden there's this value to it and the difference between a mint card and not... Well, I think it was called Beckett's. I think Beckett's was the guide Beckett, that you would go yeah, to Beckett. to see what it was worth. You know, worth. Joe, if you go if to these you know, shows and whether or not you could, you would buy one or not. A big event, one last thing before we get to Mojo, a big event for me when I was younger would be to walk from 18th Avenue and 71st Street in Brooklyn to 20th Avenue and like 72nd Street. There was a big There was a baseball card store there for years. Obviously not there anymore, but... Um, you just go and buy complete sets or, you know, at some point I got into the NBA trading cards at one point. Um, and then by the, you know, 93, 94, I became diluted. What I like about this is that the dilution of the t- cards where you had all these wacky ones, but you didn't really have anything um, is something that that is not.
0: Mojo,
4: mojo, mojo, the libido,
3: the life force, the essence, the right stuff. What the French call a certain?
6: Jim Mojo Morrison. Mojo. Mr. Morrison.
4: Good morning. How are you doing, sir? Joe, I'm glad to see that they allowed you back into the country uh, safe and sound, and uh, we're very happy to have you.
1: <laughs> you know, Mojo, it's funny. On the, way, on the way to Mexico City, when they're handing out the immigration forms, they were not going to – It were giving me, like, the ones for the Mexicans, you know, because <laughs> of my yeah. dark complexion and my black hair. So everyone just assumed I was that, and then I got the exact same question on the way in, like, which one do you need? Are you going to do, going back as an American, or are you uh, entering the country? So, and here's the thing, Joe. I told Mojo yesterday. I said, I, "This is." I said, Mo, "He's like his Joe. Joe back." I said, "You know, I have been busy. I really didn't check Facebook or Twitter for a while." I said, "I hope he's back, but I said, you know, no one getting out of Mexico might be dicey. You might need to warm up in the bullpen." So, Mojo warmed <laughs> up for today's performance. You know, and he'll be so, making his you know return to the show in a couple of weeks as a as Well, a, I'll tell you, a it's warm down co-host. here.
4: I, I I'm very I'm, you know we have 60 degrees here the next two days. I feel for you guys up there in the in that frigid cold. You know, I love New York. I love being up there. Uh, but I'll tell you, I don't miss some of these cold February and January days that, uh, that that you get up in the in the north. It's nice down here uh, this weekend. Uh, you know, and 36 more days, Joe, till selection Sunday. So you need to start brushing up on your college basketball and getting and getting all that's your selections always, ready.
1: I got to be honest. That's always a crash course for me. I have a, I'm going um, to a one-year-old's birthday party right after this today. And uh, one of my friends that's going to be there went to Villanova, huge Nova fan. And he's like, is there going to be a TV for Nova Georgetown? And I'm telling him, I'm like, I'm not sure, but... I can't tell you where they're ranked right now. Oh my I can't god! Tell you who what what a nightmare! players are one year old birthday party. The kid has no idea what's going on, and you're kind of like, the lack of a better word, held hostage. If you for a sports fan at this party where everyone's happy and the women are all happy and the guys are like, could you tell me what the score of the over game? <laughs> I'm okay. From? I mean, listen, I'm not. Uh, it's not like I'm missing an or matinee or anything, but I'm excited to see my friends oh, and I'll be much and fun. everything and catch up with them. But uh, yeah, you're right, Mojo. I am. Uh, yeah, that's always a, a March effort uh, for me to talk intelligently about college basketball. I must, I must be honest. Mojo, what do you got for us? We have we've a little bit of a baseball-centric show with the Super Bowl. Left well, you know, in. I just
4: wanted to, to, to uh, concur with your guest, uh, Kevin Kernan there, uh, when Drew called in about the whole stats versus the eye test thing. And, you know, Mike, you and I have always alluded to the man that we always go to as the prime example, a guy by the name of Kevin McReynolds. You know, we always look at him and we look at his numbers. And if you look at his numbers, I mean, you know, you can start making this case that this guy is, you know, a superstar. You know, he, w- he got paid as a superstar. Superstar. But then when you look at his actual productivity of, you know, how he performed in certain situations and, you know, when he actually you know, created these numbers that everybody looks to at the back of the baseball cards, which ironically you did a nice segment there as well uh, to, to make this, I think that you have to Throw the human factor into it. You have to throw, you know, the scouting point. I think too many people are into the numbers these days. You know, and we always look back, even in football. I always said when you look at a guy like Geno Smith's numbers in college, when his team's down by 21 points and a defense is playing 15 yards back and allowing you to take five-yard dunks at a time and just go down the field to kill clock. I mean, you're going to accumulate numbers, and I think too many people don't look at the actual game and what's going on in it and how it affects wins and losses. They just look at the actual numbers. And, you know, there are facts and then there are statistics, and numbers do lie, contrary to that show that the uh, four-letter network tries to put off uh, during the week.
1: No, you're right. McReynolds had a very big 88, 27 homers, 99 RBIs. That was his you know, best season of his career. He was a pretty good hitter, good defensive player. I mean, the metrics weren't around back then. Um, you know, I think everybody, the problem with McReynolds is that Kevin Mitchell got traded for him. Kevin Mitchell went on to have an MVP season. And Kevin Mitchell fizzled out pretty quick for a variety of reasons. And I interviewed Kevin Mitch- Mitchell actually at Strawberry's Restaurant in, uh, it's closed now in Queens. I don't know if you ever were there, Joe, over in, uh, uh, it was like Bayside area, Whitestone. And he was kind of was an, not, you know, he was. He did it under – he held his nose while he did the interview, and I tried to be as nice as possible. Actually, if you go to my Facebook page, there's a picture of me and him, and I have the the recorder out, and the body language of me and the body language of him could not be more negative because I'm annoyed Well, he was kind of known as a brooding teammate to begin with, so that's pretty much what people – remember i'd love to talk to you i'd love to talk to you about your career ask you some basic questions and he warmed up a little bit because it was a pot you know when i was doing the podcast for the baseball like these are just look backs and i wound up interviewing barry lyons that same day he had he was great we wound up talking for 30 minutes after the interview uh about a bunch of stuff so you know look again you know joe you've done these with the Isles blog good job you had jigs mcdonald on recently you don't know what you're going to get when you get a former player mostly good sometimes not so good so that was my you know my whole, uh, my whole thing. But, you know, Mojo, uh, one last thing. So you heard about Joe doing the TARP. You work in minor league baseball. Could you picture Joe furiously running out there and doing you the TARP? You know, I was thinking what
4: Joe said, and Joe's right. What they don't do now is if you're in the press box, like when we're there and we're about to start working, we don't have to go down and do that. Correct. Like, uh, like Correct. your During baseball the game, card... Yes, you're, right. but your last guest is right. Everybody else has to go down, all hands on deck. And it's kind of funny. You watch a lot of the, the, the girls, you know, the ladies that work, the the young interns and stuff. They'll take their shoes off, Joe, and they'll try to do it barefoot so they don't get their sneakers muddy. And, you know, everybody's in their, you know, their, their I, uh, polo shirts it. and their shorts. I understand And, it. <laughs> and it, it is kind of funny, especially if you have a couple of rain delays, because when that thing gets heavy with the water and stuff. But I cannot picture Joe doing that. Joe, that is just so not you getting out there in the mud, especially you probably in a, in a nice shirt and tie with your, with your nice uh, loafers on and getting ready to call the game as you were taught to do. You know, we had the same uh, dress code at Syracuse. You know, you call a game, you go there, and you dress like a professional, and, uh, you know, you shirt and tie, and, and, and you go in there, and uh, you're out there trying to pull a tarp in the mud. I, I just couldn't picture that. that. That is something that I wish there was a picture, Joe, for, because it would be priceless.
1: No, Joe, before glad if- go, what do you – Ahead, I was Sorry. gonna say I'm glad, like you know, I was 2004. I was doing that, so like some people had digital cameras, but a lot of people did not. So you know, <laughs> no fortunately, Twitter. there's not any. There's no. There's no Instagram, uh, you know, feed or Twitter feed of me of me doing such manly work around the stadium. Look, Mojo, Bean in Charlotte, before I let you go. We talked probably an hour and a half of baseball today, maybe not that much, but a lot. Is that about what you'll hear of baseball down in Charlotte this week? For, uh, uh, no, you that's know, probably what be- you'll
4: hear in Charlotte for the entire summer is an hour and a half of <laughs> baseball. I mean, they, they did about 15 hours the other day on National Signing Day, literally had every coach in the area on the air for 20 minutes. Uh, you know, they're all excited that the uh, Hornets have passed the uh, Brooklyn Irrelevance and they're now in seventh place. They have their sights on the Milwaukee Bucks and uh, ACC basketball. I mean, they interrupt, Joe, criminal minds and the Big Bang Theory on Wednesday nights and Thursday nights, the CBS lineup, to show the ACC you know, game that night. Like I had to watch Wake Forest and NC State the other night and they you know, and d- d- tape Criminal Minds at 1.30 in the morning in order to watch it because they put that's how big basketball is down here. So those are what we get. Baseball is kind of like the fourth, you know, it's actually even below hockey in some degrees because a lot of people do follow the Hurricanes uh, over in the Triangle in the Raleigh area. So it's kind of interesting that baseball doesn't get the t- kind of love – you would think in the south
1: college right. baseball well,
4: does but not pro baseball no.
1: well thank you mojo uh interesting segment had a, a little up against it here and joe listen we don't have time for it but he probably waited up till one thirty in the morning to see your cousin on criminal minds based on uh, the rumors i heard so he did a there good job. job he's a young you. joe Mantegna, my cousin there you go hey want to thank kevin Kern of the new york post also want to thank leanne uh, Minitolo minute Minatoli of uh, the Tops Company. Uh, of course, listen to the show live or on replay at com. Check us out on Twitter at Mike Silva Media, at JBono611. And again, you can listen only live on replay at com. Joe, enjoy your party. Go Villanova for your buddy. And uh, I'll talk to you next week, my friend. Talk to you next week.